Hey, it's Brian here. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Go Be More podcast. At Go Be More, our mission is simple. We want you to chase your dreams. Our apparel is designed to be a constant reminder of your commitment. And this podcast aims to give you the motivation and mindset to get started and keep going. In this episode, John and I speak with runner, author, and founder of Shoe for Africa, Toby Tanser. You may have noticed that this episode is a little bit longer than our usual shows. Well, to be honest, that's because Toby entranced us with his stories and we simply didn't want to stop. We brought Toby on to talk about how Shoe for Africa went from a one-man operation shipping used running shoes to Africa into an organization that is now building the first children's cancer hospital in Kenya. It turns out, Toby's journey was far from the norm. He went from a chain-smoking biker to a sponsored runner, to the only white guy training with the Kenyan elite, to a fixture in the New York road running scene. Along the way, he had some amazing and harrowing experiences. And those experiences have shaped who he is and what drives him to keep taking on bigger and more important projects. Toby's a remarkable person, and he has a remarkable story. So grab your popcorn, because this conversation is nothing if not entertaining. And now, here's our conversation with Shoe for Africa's Toby Tanser. All right, Toby Tanser, welcome to the Go Be More podcast. Thank you so much, and I'm delighted to be here. Toby, thank you so much for taking time to connect with us, and I'm so excited to dive into your story and my special connection as far as my running history and where you've popped up and influenced my career throughout. So this is definitely, uh, I think, 20, what, 23 years in the making, I think. <laughs> this is super exciting for me. Yeah, I'm going to let Brian kind of take it away, but uh, I just wanted to say really quick that it's super exciting that all the stuff you've been doing, and I can't wait to, to really dive in and tell everybody the story and, and, and for sure to find out what you've been up to uh, lately. So, Toby, before we get into Shoe for Africa and all the other the stuff you've been working on more lately, I, I want to start actually with your beginnings. And can you talk a little bit about where you're from and sort of who, who was Toby Tanser as a, as a child? Yeah, I was very, very lucky as a child. I grew up in um, the middle of England and my family, my mother's side of the family comes from Iceland and she didn't particularly like my father's side of the family, which came from England. So I only kind of knew my mother's relatives. And okay. so I thought, you know, all my relatives, I mean, my, my father's father, I've seen maybe twice in my life. Hmm. And, you know, just for very, very short, when I was a toddler, when I can't even remember it. So I grew up thinking my mother's world was, she was a very strong character and mm. very domineering. And we grew up in a, an area half a mile from a philosophy in a theater, which was 26 acres inside the city. It was unbelievable. It was a paradise. So imagine my parents were trustees of this theater. So it was my own personal playground. So inside the theater, there was the props room, the lighting room, the stage, you know, and the stages, you know, for... 20 hours of the day, it's deserted. So that was my personal playroom. Wow. And then on top of that, we had a philosophy center that was built next door, which was built in 1850. It was a huge stately house, you know, with carriage houses and gardens and, you know, lawns and outhouses. And so as a child, my parents didn't send me to kindergarten. They just kind of dumped me at the school, at this center. So I grew up thinking I was a lost prince. And I was misplaced at birth. And this was my personal castle. That is amazing. <laughs> <laughs> we had the most amazing people. That come. I mean, I remember once there was this Indian man called Major Ramachandra. And he was the Batman for Gandhi. And so he'd been on the salt marches 
back wow. and he had a long big big long cloak white cloak mm. and he had a staff and he brought with him 40 followers and a magician and the magician told me yeah i didn't see it he said i can walk on hot coals and pour water down my nose through you know to drink through my nose and hearing that i mean these <laughs> they were larger than life people and i remember he was the influences i got from these people was travel the world go and see because it sounded mm. so exciting but yeah. growing up in a theater you kind of you imagine this world that you want it to be. So I thought I didn't really have any limits to anything that I had in my life. It was, it was a beautiful upbringing. Can you tell me the town or the, or the, the air? You said it's in the center of England. I lived in England for a couple of years. I'm not, I'm not an expert on the Do you know geography. where Sheffield is? Yeah, I know where Sheffield mm -hmm. is. It's near, it was near there? Yeah, it, it's, it's right in there. And it's, a, it's called the Merlin Theater and Tintagel House, Tintagel House oh, wow. Philosophy Center. Oh, and fantastic. In, it was, yeah, it was, I mean, you can imagine, I mean, for me, it, probably is small now 26 acres is not as big as it sounds but you know to a little kid we had little driveways used to drive my motorbike at the age of 12 around them and you know so it was it, just paradise so um, were you were you in you said you mentioned kindergarten did you actually were you homeschooled or did you end up no. going to school eventually and, and yeah at the age of six i went to or five i went to normal school as it is yeah mm -hmm. and I had a great school I first went to. It was a small school, small classrooms, fun. I had a great time. And then um, it was an interesting time in the 1980s in England. It was a time of, you know, Margaret Thatcher, Pulse, Poltax, strikes, minor strikes, especially in Sheffield in this era. Yeah. It was a lot of, lots of confusion. And teachers also, teachers were on strike every other week. And they were angry. And then I went to a, a secondary school that was horrible. It was overcrowded classrooms. And they were trying to do things by, you know, bring kids from other areas of the city to kind of integrate. And it was just a big disaster. And they got rid of corporal punishment. So teachers didn't really know how to control the oh, classrooms. Right. And teachers were basically telling us, leave school, you know, just go and find a job because jobs are, and unemployment at that time in Britain was one in 10, which is pretty much how it is here right. now in America. It was dismal, dismal times. And the teachers kept on saying, you know, leave, leave. And then one day, I was in an English literature class when I was about 15 years old, just 15 or 16, I can't remember which. And the teacher said, um, you know, I want you to buy this cheat sheet because it's got all the exam questions. So if you buy this book, you'll be able to pass the exams. And, you know, in a, in, it was called Creative English, that's right. So I said, what's the creative part? Finding the bookshop? <laughs> I, you know, I was just like, what? Yeah. You know, a teacher is telling us this to go. And she stood up and she said, you know, if you're so clever, then maybe you should go out and, you know, find the answers for yourself. What are you doing wasting time sitting here? And I literally, I literally took it as an invitation to leave school. So I ran away with my friend Simon. We hitchhiked down to London. I forged my father's signature for an expedited passport. And we took one of these bucket shop trips over to Amsterdam. It's like $25 return trip. Wow. And we arrived in Amsterdam because three years before I'd been on holiday and had these gypsy parents used to drag me around Europe. And I remember seeing all these careers that were launched in Amsterdam of starving artists and things like this. So I thought, why not me? And this was when I realized in life that a lot happens with the people who are around you that can actually help you. Because yes. having no contacts, no qualifications, couldn't speak the language. And I just imagined jobs would come to, and I remember me and Sam, we walked around asking for jobs and people were like, what's your, what's your skill? 
I was right. like, well, we don't really have any skills. Or... <laughs> My and goodness. Simon, he left. He went back to England. And I stayed by going to the central station, which was um, right in the center of town. And I looked for foreigners. And then if I got a foreigner getting off the, the bus or the train, I would take them to a, a free, uh, a cheap hostel, you know, one of these spit and sawdust places. And I would get a free meal. And then I could stay in my hostel unless I overbooked it. And if I did, then I'd sleep rough in the night in the parks. And then in the daytime, I'd get a better sleep on the park benches in the town center where you were secure, but at least then you were not going to get beaten up. Mm. So this was when I was about 16 years old. And when I moved back to England, my parents had left town. They'd moved city. And of course, they said, you know, come with us, blah, blah, blah. You're welcome. But I decided to rough it out and try it for myself. So that really ended my schooling. And because I thought I was a professor at that time, didn't need such things. <laughs> and I launched myself off on my own career. Sadly, that ended my school. Did you in, really enjoy that time in the Netherlands? Or was that, did you find that to be like a, just a constant struggle? And it wasn't really enjoyable, but it, was, but it was what you were doing at that time because you were trying to make it work. It was a constant struggle. You're correct. It was actually, you know, the rosy colored glasses looking back. Yeah. Oh, wasn't it fun? It was miserable because, no, I didn't know where food was coming from. I remember me and Simon, when he was still there, we budgeted ourselves one cheese sandwich a day. And we didn't have money for anything over that. And I remember we had this drum rolling tobacco because I was a chain smoker at that time. And I used to take <laughs> wads of Dow Egbert's tobacco, put it in my mouth, because after chewing on that, you didn't want to put anything in your stomach for the next hours. Oh, gosh. And literally, you know, enjoyment was when we had enough money to buy one bottle of beer and we'd sit at the nightclub just you know with that one bottle huddling it you know nursing it no mm -hmm. it was, there were miserable times and there was a this guy from arabia who came and he's like ah i want to be just like you and he had his suitcase and he threw his suitcase into one of the canals because we were living on a barge <laughs> and I remember me and my friends we dived in <laughs> trying to get the things for, because we were but the good thing about it was I knew all I needed to do was go to the phone, call up my parents, and I'm sure they'd have wired me money. So I kind of had that step between knowing and then that step without it. Yes. So that was the difference. Yeah. I really always had a, I had a way out. I mean, I used to go to all the religious, like the Rajneesh and the orange people. and the, They used to give free breakfast if you went to the, the study. So I knew all these tricks on how to get by with no money. Yes. And I used to take a guitar and play on the street. And I looked young for my age. So I think people just used to give me money because they felt sorry for me. <laughs> but I used to think like, wow, I'm a pop star. Well, people <laughs> I'm a professional musician. But yeah, after a while, at the end of the summer, I realized it was miserable. It was horrible. Yeah. I was so skinny. Mm. I was like half the skinny that I am now. <laughs> I had a stomachache on every single day of the, the week. Yeah. And no, it was not fun. What were you thinking when you were, when you were um, living through that or going through that, uh, especially at that age? Like what, what kind of stuff were you thinking just to kind of get through the, each day? I really thought somebody is going to, because, you know, the, when I was in my own situation in Sheffield, opportunities yeah. were everywhere. Everybody loved me. Like, for instance, and being a kid among adults in the theater, mm -hmm. everyone kind of gave me a break. Whatever I did, if I did something wrong, I stole or anything like this, I kind mm -hmm. of got my way through it. Mm. So in this situation now, it was unique because nobody would help. I was like the annoying kid, like, who are you? You know, you're, you're a passerby <laughs> gypsy, kind of move on. We don't want you. So it was yeah. the first time in my life when I realized that, hey, I, 
not having these things around me, you, and it made me understand how an immigrant must feel and how right. it must be to go to a new country where you don't have all the things that you, you know, I, I call it luck. But then yeah. I was thinking, is it really luck or is it my parents? Is it the fact my parents have put me in this position and then my parents know all these people and then A, B, and C, you know, I can speak this language proficiently. Well, it's, so it's it interesting. Was, it's luck from your point of view because you didn't have a choice. It's just you got by, out of fortune and, and, and luck. You ended up in the situation that your parents created. It's not necessarily luck on their part because maybe they were cultivating that environment intentionally to try to create, you know, what they thought was a great environment both for themselves and for you. But I think about that as well with my, you know, my daughters, you know, they have had life experiences that I definitely didn't have. And a lot of it is intentional on my part. And a lot of it is, but from their point of view, it's just, that's just going to be the normal, right? And, and uh, mm -hmm. it's, it's interesting that you recognize it now, but I like that, I, I love that you had the spirit to go and just go out and try to do what you did. And the thing that, that strikes me is that that teacher saying, what are you doing here? I mean, that is such a contrary to what I imagine a teacher giving advice to a student, but I guess it's context of the time of the nature of how the school was. I mean, it, when, when, the way you described it, it's kind of like the teachers maybe giving good advice at that point. I, I, I find myself sort of shocked by that, like that teacher you know, catalyzing you to go and do that, that make that choice. I, I think the, yeah, I think you're completely right. I think the teachers themselves were fed up. They were just fed up of always going on striping. You know, you go into teaching profession wanting to help people. Mm -hmm. And if all the time, you, you know, you don't even know whether you're going to contract is going to be renewed, whether you're mm -hmm. going to be teaching or not, you know, why am I going into politics? I went into teaching and I think that's, it was a frustration of the teachers at the time. Mm -hmm. And they were honestly, I mean, they were young, you know, the teachers were only a few years older than, you know, they were in their young twenties and they were telling mm -hmm. me like, listen, you know, if you think, you know, we went into teaching, we went to a, get a degree because we thought that having a teaching career, now we don't even know if we're going to actually have a career or a job. You know, yeah. was it wasting our time? So I think you're right. I think they were just annoyed at their situation and giving their life experience of just saying, you know, ha, ha, ha. You know, you think you're going to be safe. You think you're going to get a, mm -hmm. a job. I have, I have a wow. question for you about that time because uh, I was – I didn't know your background in running. I'm curious how you got started in running. I'm also curious if you were athletic and, you, and, and did a lot of sports as a, as a child. Well, funnily enough, again, you know, in this family that, uh, you know, every, I think every child wants to be, create their own identity. They want to find a way to shine, to be noticed. And especially it was even more for me because everyone I met was kind of having some, you know, big, Big thing going on. Yeah, larger than life personalities and, and yeah. And I just kept on meeting people who had done fantastic things and I'd done nothing. You know, it was kind of like, <laughs> so how can I be? So my father was a, a music teacher. He was a music therapist and also a music teacher at uh, secondary school. And he always used to do the music for all the plays too. So around our house, we had a huge house, 18 rooms. There was unbelievable amount of musical instruments. Wow. We had a, a church organ. We had two pianos. We had guitars, bagpipes, tubers, cello, ello, you know, every single instrument you could think of pretty much we had around the house. So I tried, first of all, through music. But unfortunately for me, I mean, I remember the time. I'll give you an example. So I, <laughs> I heard Pete Seeger play the old banjo. So I thought, like, yes, I, that's something I can do. And I'd never heard anyone play the banjo in Sheffield before. So I got the banjo from the cellar. I got five strings on it and I got the book from the library, how to plug and do like a little ding, ding, ding. It's got five strings and you do like a middle out, middle out in a string. Uh-huh. Ding, 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 ding. 
And there was this song called Way Away, You're Bound for the Mountain. And it's like, Way Away, You're Bound for the Mountain, Bound for the Mountain. And, you can <laughs> and so I learned it in secret. I, when everyone was out of the house, I went under the stairs and I was like, ding, ding, ding. And then one day when everybody was around the house, I pulled out the banjo and I said like, hmm, let me see if I can just play this thing. You know, you know, and my father went, oh, that's nice, Toby. Let me have a look at the banjo. And he picks it up and he plays like 15 times faster than me, 15 times better. And everyone's like, oh, wow, wow. Toby, just shut up. We don't want to listen to you. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> so I tried everything. So my other career that I wanted to be was a soccer player, you know, because I was going to ask yeah. Sheffield, yeah. Sheffield United. Uh, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> you know, you're a king if you're a soccer player. Yeah. So in our new school, the secondary school, I went to the soccer team and I got on the team. And then I'd also got this trial for the Junior Blades, Sheffield United, the team that you're talking about. So yep. I thought I was set. I was going to be a soccer player because, you know, I dribbled the ball around all the time. I loved soccer and it was kind of my, my best friend at the time, not my best friend, a good friend at the time, who used to be my soccer, soccer ball kicking around friend, didn't make the team. And it was a surprise to me because he was actually a better player than me. <laughs> so he didn't make the, the soccer team. And he said to me, Toby, come and do the cross country. And I was like, what? He says, come and do the cross country team with me because you know, I've got on the team for cross country. And I said, that's for girls. I said, I, I don't want to oh. <laughs> you know, In my time, cross country was second place to soccer. Of you know, well, if you're a yeah. soccer player, you're up here. Cross country was something we presumed, you know, it's like netball or... Yeah, you know, so could, it it wasn't a manly sport. It wasn't like what mm. every kid wanted to do. <laughs> so I was like, "Are you nuts?" And he's like, "No, no, no, come, come, come." But my mother always used to push us to do something rather than do nothing. Mm. So you know, he kept on saying, "You know, come and try it anyway," because it doesn't conflict with uh, the soccer matches. You know, they're on alternate weekends. So I thought, why not? What have I got to lose? Let me go. And we went to this race. It was kind of like the city cross country championships. And I was young for my age. I was born in the end of July. And, you know, the school starts in September. So I was already young for my age. But then we were also running against the year above. But I had a good day and I finished in the top 20, which was the best for the school. And uh -huh. uh, the games teacher was like, wow. You know, and, and my friend Andy, he also did quite good. So the teacher was like, wow, now we've got a cross-country team. I can't wait to see what you guys go and do. And to be honest, I like the individual aspect. I'm not a team player. So I kind of like the fact of this was my rules. If I pressed harder, you know, I was judged on my decision. Yep. So that's pretty much how I got into running. However, I, you know, I ran, I went to the, you know, we I reached a level of kind of like the English schools, Within a year, I rose very quickly, and then I disappeared because there was an incident that happened, and we won the, the track championships for the city. And when we came to the prize ceremony, I was going, you know, for our team, we won. So I was going to lift the trophy up, and my same games teacher, he told me, he said, will you, you know, there's this other kid who's having problems in his school, but his mother is in the crowd. Can you go with this other kid and allow him to hold the trophy with you? And I was like, what? <laughs> this, is a, it's not even, this kid has done nothing. Yeah. You know, he wasn't part of team building. He wasn't part of recruiting. He wasn't the team captain. I was the team captain. No way am I going to let this. And he was, you know, not even in my school year. He was above me. Yeah. So I said to the, 
the sports teacher, I said, fine, if you want him to go, let him go alone. And I went to the bus and quit running. And of course, you know, that was a mistake. Wow. But being a 13-year-old and nobody kind of supported me. No, no one in my family were anything to do with sports. And no one said, oh, you have talent. You know, you've reached the English schools. You should continue. I quit mm. and bought a motorcycle. And my hero at the time was 10 years older than me. He was uh, kind of a, a Marlon Brando guy who had a, a custom 500cc matchless vintage <laughs> black chromed motorcycle yeah. and smoked cigarettes. So that's where I went. And I didn't do anything in sports from there on after. I just completely quit. That kind of explains your, uh, when, you, when you said being in Amsterdam and you were a chain smoker, I thought, well, he went from being a good, a good young runner to a chain smoker somehow. Yeah, so, so, so you quit. Then what, I mean, you, you come back from Amsterdam. Uh, you, you, you described that experience. How did you get back into running? How did you, or, or is that the next step? Did you, did you get back into running when you came back to, to England? No, everything in my life that I've done that's positive has been by mistake. <laughs> I haven't done anything. I can't take credit for doing anything. That's, it's just an opportunity presents itself, which is good. You know, like in Amsterdam, <laughs> no opportunities presented themselves, which right. is, you know, why I'd probably still be living in Amsterdam right now. I had the smallest opportunity come and then allowed me to continue. Yeah. So no, when I got back and, you know, I found everybody had now moved out of, you know, I was alone in the city. I hired a bedsit, a very cheap bedsit in kind of a student house. And again, you know, I mean, I was it, at that age, I was so convinced that my life was going to turn out fantastic because everyone else's life that I saw turned out fantastic. So I just thought something would happen. Yeah. And it didn't really, because all it did was I did a number of jobs. I did dispatch riding on a motorcycle. I did tree surgery, used to chop down trees. I did a lot of work at the theater, and that was the goodness. I had this theater center where I mm -hmm. could always get casual work from. And the owner of the theater center, a lady called May, she always told me, she said, if you want a career here, you'll always have it. So that was kind of like I had my safety net. Yeah. But I didn't want I, My life was about moving forward. I was never going to go back and do something but I'd do it just to get me money to go and do, you know, like I did DJing, I, I did work at the theater, there, anything just to get enough money to perpetuate this lifestyle. Right. And then whenever I got the money, I'd go back to Europe. So I'd go hitchhiking. I used to do a lot of hitchhiking around Europe because in those days, now, you know, back in the late 80s to the 90s, it was a lot safer than it is now. You know, hitchhiking was very common when I was growing up. I mean, everybody did it. Yeah. I wouldn't recommend anybody does it. <laughs> 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 but so I... I hitchhiked around, I went back to Europe and then my sister was living in Switzerland and I had a lot of friends from the theater who were in Germany or different countries like this. So literally I, I just hitchhiked and wherever the road took me, I had this tent that I got from eating cornflakes. Yeah, I had so many cornflakes, <laughs> I got this like, little tent. Saved I saved little the coupons. No, no, oh I saved the coupons from it. Yeah. And if you ate enough cornflakes, they'd send you this little tent. And I didn't even realize till I was actually out hitchhiking, the tent didn't even have a ground sheet. So the first time I, I was out in Europe and I came to pick it up, it was like, I realized I was sleeping on the ground. But I'd travel around and literally, I, I don't know how I had the confidence, but I'd just walk into a bar in town. I'd make friends. I'd just go and sit next to somebody and just start talking to them and say, like, what are you doing tonight? Or, you know, what are you? And I found by being social that doors just opened and I traveled wherever I wanted to. And to be honest, it was the life fantastic. I loved it. And then whenever I ran out of money, I'd go back to Europe. I mean, go back to England. I'd work again until I'd got enough money and I'd continue this life. 
How long wow. did you do that? Was that I for, think it's for? Here was the thing. It was supposed to be like one or two years when I decided what I'd bump into, but it went up until when I was the age of 20. And that's when I used to have a friend of my mother's who used to call me up every January to wish me hand, Happy New Year. And yeah. he used to sing that annoying line from the John Lennon song, like, you know, another year over and what have you done? I remember <laughs> saying like, you know, well, you know, it's been an eventful year. I've kind of like drifted around. I've done it. <laughs> I, I think he realized more than I did. And I had an epiphany at the age of 20. And I, I saw, wow, I could be doing this when I'm 40 years old. I, that I was stuck in this routine where if I needed money, I got money. If I traveled, I got money. And I loved it. I always met different interesting people every single trip. There was mm. no reason for me to quit this lifestyle. Mm. And, you know, I had this backdrop of knowing work was always there at the theater. But there was this same thing of telling me like, Toby, do you want to see yourself in this same position in 20 years? And the way you're going right now is how you're going to end up. So to be honest, I think I was stuck in a rut of self-indulgent living. And mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I did. And again, you know, I, when it really, when I said, you know, when I was 12 or 13, I stopped going to school regularly and, you know, stopped getting advice from my, my parents were very, very busy. No one actually monitored me. No one actually looked at my report card. I mean, my report card for my last year in school, you know where it says in the, well, I don't know if it says the same in America, but in, in England on the corner, it says days absent. My days absent outnumbered my days present. Oh, you know, yeah. was that embarrassing? You know, I was going down the road to nowhere, but nobody, you know, my parents were fine. They didn't care. It was like, a, and having no guidance, I just had to believe that something would come along. Something would turn itself out. Something will happen to you. And it did eventually, but it took its time. So when I was 20, I was sitting in the, I'd rented a house, I remember, with my girlfriend at the time. And it was a big mistake because we, we were in a bad relationship. And we're actually, we were living in a one room. So we decided she thought it was space we needed. So we'd got a big house. But that was a big problem because all my friends just came and wanted to live there instead, which annoyed her. <laughs> especially because quite a few had bad drug habits. Especially one of my friends with a heroin addict who set the sheets on fire. Anyway, that's another story. Oh, boy. <laughs> but, so we're sitting there in the morning. Remember, my hair was down to where it is right now. <laughs> Not much has changed. I'm smoking my second pack of cigarettes. I used to smoke 40 cigarettes a day. And then I had a pouch of rolling tobacco for when I ran out of the expensive Marlboros, which I loved. And I had a six pack of Guinness. And I didn't, I I didn't really eat food. I just kind of smoked. And I don't know. Like wow. in the evening, I'd eat some fast food. But I, I was pretty unhealthy, to say the least. And my motorcycle be parked outside my front door. You'd have to go to our back door to get into the house. Because I was yeah. so damn lazy. I'd open the front door to step onto my motorbike to drive anywhere. And that was Toby. <laughs> that was the Toby all my friends knew. I wow. mean, I can send you a photo. There's a picture of me in a gold lame suit. I just, I, I, I cringe to look at it now. I mean, I just, what was I, doing? <laughs> I was just uh, kind of like uh, going nowhere, going nowhere, but, you know, having fun. And so this girl that I was dating, she had like a little um, portable television, you know, just uh, the side... They don't have them any day these days anymore, but they were small portable ones with rabbit ear. Yeah, yeah. So kind of, yeah, so she was looking at that and she was twiddling through the channels and I was reading a book or a magazine and she was also a chain smoker. So the, the room was just full of smoke. You could, I could barely even see her through the smoke. And she was flipping, trying to find a movie, like going through the channels. 
And suddenly on the screen, there was a picture of a runner running across the screen. And then the channel went. And I was like, wait, wait, hold on, hold on, go back, go back. And she's like, what? I said, I know that man on the screen. And she's like, you're kidding. What are, you know, how would you, how do you know somebody running on the television screen? I said, go back, go back. And it was the Commonwealth Games Marathon. And the guy I recognized for us, when I was 12 years old, and I had my one fleeting year in athletics, I joined this club called Halam Shaharias. Uh-huh. And inside Halam Shaharias, the best star was this guy called Sebastian Coe, oh, who wow. was then a fantastic guy. Of course, yeah. he's a, I actually gave him a pair of socks because I thought he must go through a lot of pair of socks quickly. I didn't realize that <laughs> professional athletes get them for free. <laughs> very nice. He was very, very yeah. He, but there was another guy who was more relatable to us in the club because Sebastian lived in um, Loughborough. So he would turn up at the club and he'd almost be like a celebrity and then disappear. But the guy who was a relatable hero was this guy called, what was he called? Carl Thackeray. Oh, now, Carl Thackeray, yeah, he, he ran 60 minutes for the half marathon yeah. and he got a bronze medal in the world championships. And so Carl was a relatable hero. You know, he was there every week, every... Now, one day... Now, I lived on the nice side. Sheffield, to be honest, it's a city where it has, two, it has an industrial side, which is, you know, a lot of industry and smoke and, you know, smoked out buildings. And then the mm -hmm. side with the parks. It actually has more trees than any other city in England, I think. Used to, anyway. But I, luckily, lived on the nice side of the city. And the running club was on the other side of the city. And when I went to the other side of the city, I didn't actually know my way around there. So I was new to the club and I was new to the area. And it used to take me about half an hour to you know, maybe 40 to 50 minutes to actually get to the area because I used to take two buses. So when I arrived one Sunday and all my teammates were out doing competitions and I was the only person there, I thought, I'm not going to waste this trip, you know, and not have a run. I'm going to run with the seniors instead. So I jumped onto the seniors of Carl's group because I was like, now I get a chance to run with the club hero, Carl. Yeah. And I started running. And... Carl was, he was oblivious to everything. He was on the front of the pack running away. But the guys in the middle of the pack, the other seniors, they're like, what's this skinny little junior doing? He's not supposed to be in our group. Why is he hanging on the back? Let's yeah. shift the pace and get rid of him. <laughs> now, this was my time in my life when I discovered that the muscles actually are less powerful than the mind. Because I was so, so scared of getting lost. Because I figured if I drop from this pack, we were running in the countryside. It was in yeah. the, you know, it wasn't even, I couldn't ask anyone where is the way home. So I was running, 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 thinking like, my God, I'm going to be lost for the rest of my life unless I hang on to the back of the group. And that's where I discovered when the legs tell you enough, the mind is more powerful. You can command your mind to keep on running. So I went through a threshold of realizing how powerful the mind was. So I never forgot that. And that was the only one time in my single life I ever ran with Carl, but it wow. burnt. It really burnt deeply. So now when I'm watching the television, I see Carl on the television. That was the only reason why I remembered him. And I, for instance, if another group of runners had gone past, I wouldn't have been interested. I mean, I didn't watch, you know, other sporting events right, or other right. running races on there. It was only seeing, and I think what it was, was seeing an ordinary person, which to me he was doing something mm -hmm. extraordinary. And he was running in the Commonwealth Games Championship. So yeah, yeah. So what it's happened now? It's a big deal. Yeah. The Commonwealth Games is it's what's is it? I think it's considered the second or third uh, largest competition behind you know World Championships and Olympic Games. 
Exactly. You would understand. Yeah, exactly. It's yeah, a hugely yeah. prestigious um, race. And, you know, for Carl to be there running, I was like, my God. And that yeah. fact of, I know this person. <laughs> and the woman is looking at me like, hey, I don't believe this story. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you can't run to save your life. But when Carl dropped out of the picture, he also dropped out of the race. I started watching mm. the, the whole of the race, you know, just from what was going on. And there was this skinny Tanzanian runner called Simon Robert Nali, who mm. was in the lead with a white singlet. And then there was this Kenyan in a red singlet who was more stoic and almost looked like a Zen master. You know, he's like very focused, just running at the same pace and very sturdy compared to the other one. And I thought, this is like a boxing match. I'm watching a fight between two people. They're both running forwards, yet it's almost as though they're interacting. So mm -hmm. I became entranced. And the first time in my life, I started watching, you know, a marathon on television. And I watched the whole two hours. And funnily enough, and this was very selfish of me because the girls smoked Marlboros also. I had my Marlboros in my hand as I always did because I always used to carry my pack in my hand because I was being a chain smoker. As soon as one went out, I was pulling the next one out. My hand crumpled the cigarette packet without it even meaning to because, I mean, like I say, Marlboros are very expensive and she would have appreciated them if I didn't want them myself. My hand crumpled the cigarette packet. I broke the rest of the cigarettes. And I think what it is, I know it sounds corny now, but it's my my mind was just telling me, you know, you've had enough. Yeah. It's time to change. Mm. It's time to actually change. So yeah. what I did was I put on a pair of running shoes and I didn't actually have running shoes. They were kind of more like um, fitness shoes, <laughs> right. you know, like the ones you might use for gardening or something. And I went out onto the street and luckily we lived on the top of the hill so I could get some momentum. And I started jogging down the road. And I felt like I could fly. It was amazing. It was like, you know, my lungs were chock-a-block full of, you know, tar for the last six years of smoking. But I felt <laughs> this was how I was going to pull myself out of my rut. And I was like, damn, you should have never stopped running. You know, this is, this is how you're going to get yourself out of the rut. Mm. That's how I started running. Wow. wow. And then... So wow. I don't know how to, I don't know where, where the right way to fast forward is. You have been a dedicated runner since that point and you've, you've won lots of races. You've, how did you transition into getting into competitions? Like what was your progression like in a, I guess in a summary form? Cause actually I want to get to some of the stuff you're doing now with Shoe for Africa and stuff. But, but I find this so fascinating because you really came out of a difficult place to get to, to where you are now. Well, funny you should say that. <laughs> because... <laughs> Because what happened was, so all my friends, of course, every single friend of mine was smoking and drinking. And they were all like, you know, oh, come on. You know, like when, when you're committing a crime, when you're going to do a bank robbery, it kind of helps if your best buddies are there with you. Yeah. And if you're smoking, you don't want to be the, you know, sitting amongst angels going like, oh, smoking is bad. So all my friends were trying to push me back into yeah. smoking. They're like, they'd do things like they'd light a cigarette and leave it in the room and say, oh, I thought, you know, like this and all the tricks to kind of drag me down. And I had a reputation. <laughs> so, I mean, I was steps away from doing it. So I thought, I thought by myself, what I need to do is I need to change my situation. I need to get out of this toxic situation I'm in right now, which is toxic not by the, I mean, it was a beautiful place. I mean, the theater, I love the theater and the people involved in it. I, toxic was myself, was yeah. how I actually, did. I now have to turn my own luck around. So I thought the best thing for me to do is 
let me go to live in another city. So learning from what happened in Amsterdam, I said, let me go to a place where I've got some connections. So I moved to Reykjavik. Oh, okay, Reykjavik in Iceland, yeah. Reykjavik in Iceland, yeah. And I went to go and live with Uncle Ausker. Uncle Ausker was, he's, uh, he's like a second uncle to me. He's not my first uncle. And he'd got a helicopter. He owned four cars. He owned a <laughs> Honda V11, 1,100cc turbo motorcycle, divorced, wow. lived alone. And, uh, he sounded like a beautiful uncle to me. Yeah. And <laughs> I was like, yeah, sure. He said, talk to you and you can come and live with me. Stay with me until you get your, yourself on the feet and you find what you're going to do in Iceland. Yeah. So I thought, good enough, good enough. So I, I jump on a plane. And I remember it was a Sunday night when I arrived in Iceland and I didn't have any money when I, they dropped me off in the city center and I got my guitar and my bags. And so I just, I found where his address was and I walked there and it was about 1130 at night when I came to the house Sunday night and I was thinking, oh, I'm going to wake people up or, you know, crazy like this. And the house was rocking, rocking. They were like partying and shouting and drinking whiskey. Wow. They were not drinking whiskey little shots. They were drinking whiskey by the mugful. So... I got out my guitar. I started playing at six o'clock in the morning. I went to bed and I was thinking, my God, if this is Iceland on a Sunday night, what the hell am I going to do? <laughs> oh, like, boy. This is like a crazy place. Now, one of my relatives was a guy <laughs> called Kristin. And Kristin decided to take me on under his wing and show me the Reykjavik nightlife. Kristin, I never used to see him till about five o'clock in the afternoon. He had shopping bags under his eyes. He used to smoke cigarettes all the time. It was like, you know, never shaven. It was like rough looking guy. And so he'd take me and we'd literally we'd party from midnight till about five o'clock in the morning. Funnily enough, Kristin today is that he's the front man for WikiLeaks. Kristin oh. Krabson, he's called. <laughs> really? So, <What>? Yeah. <laughs> so one morning at five o'clock in the morning, me and Kristin are walking up the street and I'm trying to make Kristin understand about running. You know, like us runners, we understand the, the runner's high or that kind yeah. of mm-hmm. But you try to explain that to somebody who is not a runner. And it just sounds like a load of, you know, bull. Mm-hmm. So I'm thinking like, so how can I get Kristin? Because I was like, I was starting jogging now and I was loving my jogging. I'd go down to the Reykjavik docks and back again. But I used to go early in the morning. So he didn't even know that I was really out there running. But I was hoping that he would get the, the running. And we were walking up the street and we went past this shop and there was a big poster in the window. And, you know, it's daylight because in Iceland in the middle of the, the summer, it's like 24 hours daylight almost. So it was bright lights. And I saw this poster and I said to him, I said, Kristen, I bet I can beat you in that race. And he's laughing at me. Like, don't be, you know, you. <laughs> don't be so sure. You know, he thought he had like an even chance against me. Yeah. So I said, you know what, Kristen, the one who wins in this race pays for the next night out because Iceland is very expensive. You know, there's a lot of uh, much higher tax on alcohol. And in those days, which back in the 1990s, a beer was maybe $10. It's probably like $500 by now. So I remember saying, you know, (laughs) this is a good, good, good move because it it costs a lot when you go out to drink. And Icelanders tend to, they drink over the weekend. They don't usually drink through the day, through the weekdays. And looking at the bar tab, I thought, you know, if I can just beat him, then that'll be a good achievement enough. But if he starts running too, then I'll have helped him. Mm-hmm. Went back, went back home, probably got home in bed at six o'clock, passed out. I completely forgot about the race. I completely forgot about oh, the, no. the poster. However, by the good luck, by fate, his girlfriend, Helga, worked for Eastland Banky. 
Now, Eastland Bunky were the title sponsor. So when she went to work on Monday morning, they were doing a staff sign-up, trying to get the staff to sign up. So she signed me and Kristen up for the race. So two weeks later, oh, we go down to the starting line. And I had never seen a city center close just for running. You know, I'd seen cross-country races and track races. But the whole, the right, the Times Square of Reykjavik was blocked off with blocking tape and disco music. And in those days, you know, pink lycra tights and everyone was jiggling and joggling and jumping up and down and stretching. And I, <laughs> I'm like, what is this? And there was, so, there was like about 4,000 people there. I lost Kristen in the hop-up. But I thought like, shoot. All I need to do is make sure that I'm in front of him because then, you know, I can monitor the situation. So I went to stand <laughs> on the front of the starting line and our color-coded bibs were, they were like green, blue, and red. And I was like, I wonder what distance, because I knew we were not in the full marathon, which was the 26 miles, because I knew Helga would not have put Kristen in the 26 miles. But there were some other differences, like a half marathon, a 10K, or some other different. I right. didn't know what the distance was. So I thought... <laughs> When I'm lined up, let me go and ask the guy next to me, what's the green bibs? You know, because we were the green bibs. What, what's the distance we're running? Right when I got onto the front of the line, the gun went boom. And we, you know, the race started. Now, my Icelandic language was very, very terrible at this stage. I, you know, I didn't really speak very well. So I thought rather than hassle the person next to me, there was a line of police bikes about 50 meters in front of the starting line that had all lined up on both sides of the road. And I thought when we come to one of those, and I'll just ask the guy, hey, what's, you know, what's this way? I didn't realize the bikes then came in front of us and started leading the way. So I was sprinting after the police motorbike going like, Heather, Heather is, hey, in Icelandic, like, Heather, Heather, trying to stop him to ask him how long. And he's like driving. And I'm thinking, this is not very friendly. <laughs> sprinting, trying to catch him up faster. Trying and faster. to catch the pace bike. <laughs> trying to catch a pace bike. And now what I realize, I'm leading the race. So now I'm running down the street in Iceland. And remember, you know, we're not in Kenya here. The standards are a little bit different. But running down the street and either side of me, on the, the roads are packed with spectators. And they're screaming and shouting, Alfram, Alfram, Alfram. That means go, go, go. Alfram. And I thought, yeah, I can get into this. I like this. You know, I'm cheering on. Cheering. <laughs> I got these police bikes. Like, and they have the Harley Davidsons, like the California chips bikes out yeah. there. So I'm like, I'm like, I'm like yes, yes, yes. And I figured out. What's the worst that can happen? The faster I run, the longer I'm going to distance myself from Kristen. And right. even if I come to a stumbling stop, the chances are if I'm closer to the finishing line, I'm going to be ahead of him. And then if I'm right now in the front, I can actually see one by one who is going past me. So I thought, let me just keep on this. So I kept on going. And I will say my advantage was like now I think I'm like 150 pounds. Then mm -hmm. I was about 138 pounds and I'm six mm. foot two. Because I didn't eat when I was a smoker. That was my talent. <laughs> <laughs> Luckily, the, the race was short. It was only a 7.5-kilometer race, and it was okay. completely flat. There were no hills. So wouldn't you know, by good luck, I came, and I crossed the line. I won the race. So when I crossed the line, there was all the TV and the newspapers coming up to me going like, who are you, and you know, where have you come from, and what races have you won before? I'm like, I'm just trying to win a beer. I'm just trying to... And this <laughs> guy comes striding up to me and he goes like hi i'm the nike rep uh, you know you smashed the course record by almost yeah i think it was like a minute i can't remember a minute and a half whatever like he said you smashed the course record you know will you represent our, our brand will you come to our offices tomorrow we'd love to have what? you i was like my goodness this is sounding good and then this 
<laughs> this team leader from another club, like an individual club, said, you know, and if you run for us, we'll send you to Germany for training camps and any receipts you get, just save them. We'll reimburse you. And I was like, wow. whoa, whoa, this is... <laughs> wow. Finally, Kristen crosses the line. I beat him. So, you know, that's, <laughs> that's how I started running. I mean, it was by mistake. Literally, I did not... First of all, I didn't intend to enter that race. It was only because on a drunken stupor, I saw the poster and hoped <laughs> by doing it, I would get Chris, uh, Kristen into the running. And so, yeah, it was just good by that. And so that's how it started. Wow. Is it, was it a switch for you, though? Like when all that came up for you, the, the Nike opportunity, the training camps, the opportunity to really dive into the sport, did it, did it actually resonate with you immediately or did you have to think about it? No, it didn't. I mean, I didn't really understand and I didn't understand how lucky I was. And, you know, also at this age, the, one of the guys involved with Nike was trying to get me to come to America. He says, you know, I can get you a scholarship oh. and you can study over there. And I, I, was too, I was too arrogant at the time to realize and to process or I didn't have mentors. I didn't, you know, I didn't know anyone who was a runner. I didn't know. I mean, I knew the people on Runner's World from read about in a magazine or something, but I, I didn't have any people that kind of could guide me mm -hmm. and tell me do this or do that. And I didn't understand what opportunities were available to me at that time, because could I have gone back now, I would have taken the educational opportunities. I'd have gone to America, taken advantage of those scholarships to get an education and, you know, all those type of stuff. But at the time I didn't understand. And I was just enjoying, you know, living in Iceland, and having this fun world, you know, I had a lot of uh, friends my age who were all my friends, none of them were runners. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we'd go out and drink beers a lot of the time and none of them were really interested in the running side of it. So I, I didn't understand what, what I'd actually be given. Yeah. Can you tell me, how, how does, how, how did you transition? Yeah, you see, from, this is like the, what, what year? That was 1990. 1990. So, I mean, uh, in the 90s, I know that you wrote a book on running and that you, that you had, um, which I believe is the, is the Training the Kenyan Way, although I can't remember if that's the, the one I'm thinking of. But so you, got, you really went from this point to writing a book about running and getting really involved in Africa and running in mm -hmm. Africa. And how, how does that transition happen? Well, funny you should say so, because also the book was completely by mistake. We'll get to that in a minute. <laughs> My goodness. Completely <laughs> by mistake. And it, it really was, I, I wrote the book to try and save myself time. I'll come to that soon. But so what happened was I lived in Iceland and it was, it was beautiful for me, but I had a Swedish girlfriend who didn't enjoy Iceland as much as I did because, you know, being a, a sports star in um, a goldfish bowl, because you know, Iceland, you know, it's a small, small country, yeah. but everybody suddenly knew me every week. I was in the newspapers and because, you know, I was winning all the races there, but so I was getting doors open to me. I was being invited to parties. I was meeting all the celebrities there. And so I suddenly realized, wow, this is like a, you know, it was a beautiful, beautiful scenario that was laid out just for me, but not really for her. And she was like, Toby, this is a one horse town. I mean, we're, I don't see what I'm going to be doing here. And she said, like, I'll go anywhere with you. She says, you know, anywhere in the world, you know, but it has to be somewhere where there's more opportunities for the both of us. And I was like, this is, and this happened after, you know, we'd been living there for a couple of years. So we decided again, you know, with my, um, my learning that I had to go to a place with, with contacts, I told her, I said, well, you know, what about Sweden? You know, you want to go to university? 
mm-hmm. why don't you go to university in Sweden because the education will be cheaper and then, you know, I'll try running that. And in Sweden, they have professional clubs who, mm-hmm. it's not, you know, Peter Meyer, the, the guy from Florida, the Irish um, Canadian says, says it in a nice way. You know, he used to say, it's the, the millionaire's lifestyle without the money being a, a bootstrap runner, you know, where you get invited to races all around the world. You're never going to be, you know, making a lot of money, but you can survive off this type of lifestyle. Yeah. And if you're young, it can be a fun way to do it. So that's, I was being invited for races in different places in the world. And I, I just loved that kind of, you know, that travel opportunity. And I thought Sweden was going to be far more of a better base to travel from than mm-hmm. Iceland. And also to be fair to her, because I was a very, very selfish person. And I thought, you know, every decision we've made so far is all about being about me. Let me jump myself into her world. So we moved to Sweden. And when we're inside Sweden, we lived in a small village with 160 people. And I used to go running in the, the snow, being hoping that I wouldn't be shot up because they used to have legal moose hunting teams. Oh, go out with guns trying to... <laughs> and I'd be running going, please, please don't do that. And I remember once a horse got shot by the group and the guy was, oh, I was a little bit, you know, miscited. I didn't see it was... I was like, Next time it's going to be me. So, and then the snow was so deep and there were wolves and bears and, you know, elks. It was not the perfect scenario, but this club in Stockholm offered me a stipendium and offered me an apartment in Stockholm. Mm -hmm. And all I had to do was just run, you know, run for them. So I went down to Stockholm and then how Africa came into it. It was a funny thing. I was doing one of these races down in Stockholm and I was going around the corner. It was a 5K and I was in the last, last half a mile or so coming around the corner. And this African was pushing me out of the way as we we're going around the corner and you know, I was trying to cross country, you know, you're trying to hug the inner line. Yeah. And I was just about to use my elbow to elbow him in the face because he was smaller than me. And I looked across and it was Simon Robert Nolly. And mm. I was like, my God, he is the guy that got me into running when I was watching on television in England. And here I am now, I'm racing against him. About to elbow him in the face. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Probably you're my hero. introduction. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so we came to the end of the line and I said, like, Simon, you don't realize, like, you know, you, this is like, you know, Carl was my past. You are my present. You know, this is, I was watching you and Douglas running this race together. Like, how wonderful to see you here in the race. And he's like, mm-hmm. oh, you know, very hospitable. He's like, why don't you come mm-hmm. and train with me? I was, I was living in um, one area of Stockholm where he was living was very close. Yeah. And so he said, you know, if you want to come to any training sessions, you can come and do this. So that kind of reinterested my international African style running. You know, I, started, I was starting to think like, wow, yeah, this is, uh, I'm living the dream type <clears> of stuff. <throat> so that was kind of my transition of how I moved from Iceland to living in Sweden. And then... Sorry, from there, you... Oh, well, just keep going because you're, you're telling... I, that's how you got connected to, to Robert Nolly, but it, it obviously sent you down a path of of learning how the Kenyans train enough to write a book about it, right? Mm-hmm. That was another mistake. And what happened, <laughs> I was in a 5,000 meter race in a, a city called Yevla, which is about 100 miles north of Stockholm. And there were, um, there was about 20 athletes you know, from different countries all around the world. And we're standing there on the starting line. And, you know, you have this elderly Swedish guy who'd got the clipboard and he has to run down the list of names. So it'd be like saying, Brian, you know, da da da, John, da da. And, say, and all you do is, you just, as you know, you put your arm and go here, here, here. So yeah. it's called off pricking in Swedish. And so it's just like, you know, roll call. 
so the guy, the old Swedish guy, I remember he had this like fedora on his hat and a corduroy <laughs> jacket and he's going down on the name. And he says his name, he goes, Burkole. And this little Irish leprechaun steps forward and goes, how are you not pronouncing my name like that, sir? <laughs> and he gets the guy by the arm and pulls him onto the infield and starts giving him lessons on how to, you know, pronounce his name, Berkeley. What? Thinking like, who does this? You know, it's on your marks and your heart is rating, you're ready to do the, the 5K. And I thought like, this guy is a nut. I have to talk to him. So <laughs> after the race was finished. But when we finished the race, I went up to this guy and I said like, well, who pulls a stunt? Like, you know, what are you doing? And he's like, oh, you know, I'm not having my name butchered like that. And like, so we became <laughs> friends. And then, you know, John, as you know, you keep on meeting the same athletes in yeah. the racing circuit, you know. Yeah. Two weeks later, you're lining up again. So I became friends with this guy. Next season, he calls me up. He goes, Toby, I want you to find me a Swedish wife, blonde. I was like, I beg your pardon? <laughs> <laughs> he says, I'm coming for the world champions uh, championship. And they're in Gothenburg. And he says, yeah. I'm coming for the world championships. I'm, and I'm there for two weeks, my tickets for two weeks. And I want you to find me a Swedish wife while I'm there. And so I was like, oh, all right, okay. I'll see what I can do. <laughs> maybe he had his, uh, I don't know, you know, maybe seeing some of my friends and thought, you know, okay, I can hook him up. I didn't know. So he arrives and he ran on the first day of the championship and he was knocked out. And the Swedish, no, the Irish team were going to send him back home. So he said, how am I going to find my wife? And he said, my plane ticket is for two weeks. Can I come and stay with you? So he decided that he'd come and stay with me. So we started training together. So although I failed as a matchmaker, I... I wasn't as talented as Noel. Noel was very, very talented. I don't know how he managed to run so fast because he never used to train. And we'd go <laughs> to a trap session and do, you know, like 20 times 400. After four efforts, three, two efforts, he'd be like, oh, you'd have to be good enough for today. I'll not be doing it anymore. I'd be like, come on, Noel. We just go to the trap. You have to do them, you know. So I think what he realized was I was a good, I was a good instigator for him to actually start him to get on a training plan. So when he left, this is in June, when he left to fly back, or July and whatever, to fly back to Ireland, he told me, he said, you know what, Toby, let's go to Kenya. And I was like, I beg your pardon? He goes, you can be my training partner in Kenya. And I was like, no, 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 no. I'd already, you know, my Swedish team used to have apartments down in the south of Spain where we could go to. Mm -hmm. And I had actually decided I wanted to come to America. I wanted to go to Albuquerque because that was like the fashion in the 90s to go and train in Albuquerque. So I'd already decided, you know, no, I'm going to Albuquerque. You know what? They have running water. They have electricity. Yeah, right. <laughs> you have to go to Kenya. He said, like, if we want to understand how to run the best, if you want to really go, you know, you have to go where the best runners are. So I'm like, um, no, no, yeah, I'm, I'm really not into this idea. And then he said, you know, started talking about Eldoret. And funnily enough, yeah. Eldoret made a memory from when I was about six or seven, eight years old. My parents had missionary friends. Again, these people used to travel through the theater coming through there. And they'd been doing missionary work in Kenya. And I remember they brought us gifts. And most of my parents' friends didn't used to bring gifts for me and my brother and sisters. They used to just, you know, come and go. And so it was like a novelty when we were getting gifts. And I remember my gift from Mike and Liz. And I opened the gift expecting to see something exotic from Africa. And I saw a satchel. And not only was it a satchel, but it was a used satchel. And I was <laughs> like, geez, come off it. What's this? 
And Mike is going like, you know, he's trying to spice up the story to try, you know, being a good yeah, missionary, yeah. trying to keep it. He goes, yeah, yeah. Well, you know what? In Kenya, they put hens inside these bags and they use these bags to carry around you know, when they go places. And he was trying to perk up the story. Me, I'm just thinking like, think about the yellow stains that are going to be inside the bag now. <laughs> <laughs> the hen is peeing in the bag. I really don't want it. <laughs> then he said the magical world. He said Eldoret. And I was like, my God, Eldoret, that sounds like Eldorado. And in those days, yeah. when I was eight years old, I used to love this guy called Kit Carson. Mm. Kit Carson was a cowboy from El Dorado. So I was like, my God, I know yeah. some of my parents' friends are going to the African El Dorado. And so I went racing to wow. the encyclopedias, opening up and trying to find out about El Dorado. And I saw these Maasai warriors in the encyclopedia plates. So there's a picture of these Maasai dressed in robes and they had... They had these knives and they had spears and they mm -hmm. had shields. And I was like, wow, that's what I want. Instead of this stupid little green scruffy bag, I, can he, maybe if I'm nice to him and start being kind to Mike, he'll bring me back all this regalia the next time he goes. So that's how I got interested in Eldoret. So when now Noel is saying, Toby, we're going to go to this town called Eldoret, I'm like, what a weird coincidence. Yeah. Out of all the towns in the world, you have to mention the one town that actually, you know, and that little green bag came in use. I used it for stealing tins because we was having a, a project at the school and I won some competition of being the top tin donor because, you know, we're doing tins for the Harvest Festival. Yeah. And I used that bag. To say, so I remembered the bag and it became like this special bag memory to me. So that's why I agreed to Noel. So I said to Noel, yep, yeah, let's go to Africa. So they, remember, this was in the summer. Now, back in the 90s, not many runners went to train in Africa. And especially, mm -hmm. you know, it, it wasn't really like now, you know, there's uh, places where people can go to, there's uh, camps where people can go to. Mm -hmm. Everything in those days, there wasn't such, wasn't a setup. But I was fine. You know, I was traveling with Noel. And Noel talked about all these complicated kip names that I couldn't remember anything about. But he talked about this Irish priest called Brother brother something, brother Colm. And I remember thinking, like, mm -hmm, is that? so I just thought, you know, Noel's got everything set. I don't even have to concentrate on anything. He's got everything set up. I remember Noel's quote too, leave your wallet at home. He said, I know everybody. So leave your wallet at home. So all my Swedish friends, so I was absolutely stupid. They said, the best case scenario, you're going to be eaten by a lion. The worst case scenario, <laughs> <laughs> you ain't going to be running with those Kenyans. That's for sure, you know. But I mean, John, like you know, I mean, when we go yeah. to racing competitions, we meet them every you know, weekend in races. We, you know, I knew it wasn't going to be that, that bad. I mean, I, geez, right. I thought I'd be able to run with them. It wasn't going to be that difficult. So I, I kind of just shelved that away. And I, I went across that season. I did my own stuff. And then on November the 1st, we were going to fly on after about 10 days. I remember it was just the start of November. And in Sweden, you know, the, it goes really, really dark very, very quickly. Yep. in the winters you know it's very very dark so i remember it was a horrible cold night and the phone rings and i was cooking and those are the days when the phones used to be attached to a, a string a cord <laughs> yeah. so i'm trying to answer the phone at the same time as cooking i'm sauteing the onions and cooking like this and the phone is like ringing out i pick it and it's no and for the first time in his life he's really quiet and in these days you know back in the 90s expensive phone calls so i'm trying to get Noel to kind of talk faster yeah. I'm like, yeah, no. And I, I say to him, I say, is it really anything pressing or can it wait till we actually get there? And he goes, well, no, no, no. Just have a great time in Kenya. Bye. And puts down the phone. 
And I'm like, what? He told me, have a great time in Kenya. And, you know, he wasn't going. And oh, it wow. kind of hit me like a slap in the face. But yeah. I, was very, I was a very proud individual. And I never really, I wasn't going to call him up and say, like, excuse me, no, do you know, did I hear you right? You know, is this, are you really, I was like, huh, you know, you're dumping me? So what? You know, I'll, everything will be all right. You know, everything in my life had turned out all right. So I figured out how difficult can it be? You know, I'll just get there. But I pretty much put it out of my mind until I flew to Kenya. I arrived in Kenya night, nighttime around 10 o'clock in the evening, went into the, the baggage thing, waited for my bags, no bags came. And remember, I was the first person <laughs> into the baggage hall. I was the last person to leave. Sitting there, just went my three big bags full of all the running gear, because as you know, you know, Kenyan runners are often saying, oh, we don't have equipment. So, so I was bringing yeah. over a lot of equipment, not only for myself, also to give away. I didn't have anything apart from my hand baggage. Oh, and man. so I'm watching and watching. And I think like, what do I do? So like 11 o'clock, I go and file a lost baggage claim. And then I go out onto the street and I'm looking for, you know, I'm imagining like, you know, the, the yellow cabs, like in New York, what's the color for Kenya? What do they look like? So I'm trying to look and there's nothing that actually even looks like a cab. And you <laughs> right. know, it's late at night now. And all these people are grabbing me by the arms, pulling me this direction, saying this guy, come this way, this way, this way. And I'm like, oh my God, what is a so my grandmother, my Icelandic grandmother, she always used to tell me, Toby, you judge people by their teeth, which herself, she had false teeth. So I don't know what she was doing. <laughs> <laughs> no one in our family has fantastic teeth. So she said, judge people by their teeth. So I was looking at these taxi chauffeurs, looking like, which one do I, you know, who looks like uh, so this guy with a big beaming smile? I thought, okay, let me choose him. So I went with him, wow. random as it was. And we went into the car and it was a small Fiat. And, you know, I'm six foot two. I could barely fit into the Fiat. And then I, could, I was like slamming the door. It wouldn't shut. And then his car wouldn't start. We had to push. And all the other drivers kept on hassling us, trying to pull me out of the car and pull me to their own car because, you know, they were saying. And the driver asked me, said, like, where to? I'm like, great question. I don't know where to. I mean, and I said, well, being a runner, I don't want to be in the city center. I said, I don't, you know. Don't take me to the city. But do you know anywhere where I might, you know, in the morning I might meet runners or might be an area where runners are that isn't in a congested city center that has a relatively, pre, you know, nice cheap uh, hotel. He said, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I know a place. Come with me. So we drove, we drove, we drove into Nairobi, first of all, you know, on the roads. And I remember looking at the, the tarmac and this was not Africa that I expected. I expected to see acacia trees and bursting sunsets in the trumpeting elephant in the corner and a lion moving along. All I saw was concrete buildings, broken down cars, cars without lights. And, you know, the cars were not even following any routine of traffic. We we're coming to exactly. traffic lights. Everyone was flying through. I was like, my God, where am I, you know, where am I going to? And then I suddenly thought like, maybe this guy's a ax murderer. Maybe he's going to take <laughs> me down an alleyway and kill me. I mean, like, is he even a taxi driver? No, he's got great teeth. Like, he's okay. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you can eat me up. And I remember, I was like, maybe I just concentrate on looking out the window. I was trying to do the window, the the winder on the window. You know, in those days, there were no electronic windows. Yeah. And the window wouldn't open. I was like, yep, this is it. And all my Swedish friends, they could be laughing at me. Got into a car, beaten. You know, this was the end of him. We drove and drove and drove, and we came to a place called um, it's Ngong on the other side of Nairobi. So it was literally went through from one side, went through the city center to the other side to the outskirts. And we parked outside a big privet hedge with a big iron door, you know, big iron sheep store. And I thought, this is not a hotel. 
And a guy came out, you know, after he'd honking on the horn, this guy comes out of this little doorway that's cut into the metal frame. Yeah. And the guy has a big, big club in his hand. I'm going, oh my God, this is it. He's coming to attack us. So I asked the driver, I'm like, uh, you are aware that there's this huge man coming towards us now with a big club. And, like, and he goes, no, 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 no. That, you know, that's a, the watchman. Don't worry about him. Um, you know, and that's a, a Maasai Rangu. You know, it's like a, a security thing. Don't worry, yeah. that's a good guy. I'm like, wow, that's a good guy. <laughs> I don't want to be bad. <laughs> so I get escorted into the reception and the receptionist is asleep. She's snoring. I'm kind of like waking up and going like, eh, any runners around here? She's like, no. So I think like, oh, I've just been duped. I've just been taken to an area where, and I think the best thing for me to do, I've got no running gear. I have no possessions. Let me sleep one night at this hotel. Tomorrow morning, I'm going back to the airport. Because the good thing about it was I was sponsored with air tickets. So I didn't have to, you know, my air tickets were free. Like it was just a flight that I'd made and I could go back to Sweden. I could pick up more free gear and then go back and meet my Swedish team down in uh, Andalusia, down in mm -hmm. the south of, south of Spain. So I had good options. It wasn't really, it was just kind of like, it's a drag that it's happened. Yeah. I went to bed. I woke up the next morning because a big mosquito was like buzzing around my ear. And I saw on my hand I'd been bitten already. And I was like, oh, my God, now I've got, I'm going to die because I've now got malaria. I didn't know anything about malaria. I knew it was bad. And then now I've got bites all over me. I thought, this is just a trip from, you know, the worst trip ever. And like, um, like most runners, I used to try to run every day or, you know, run at least more days in the week than others. And because I hadn't traveled, I hadn't ran yesterday, hadn't, because uh, of traveling, I wanted to run today. I didn't want to have two consecutive days of no running. So I had a t-shirt and jeans, and I always travel in running shoes just for comfort of walking around, spending a lot of time on my feet. So I was wearing my old pair of Nikes on my shoe, and I thought, okay, I want to, like Meryl Streep, I have a farm in Africa. I'm going to go back to Sweden and say, I went for a run in Africa. So I thought, I have to, yeah, I can't leave Kenya without saying I went for a run. So why don't I just go for a run in my street clothes? When I get back to the hotel, there were loads of like little kiosks, because I'm sure I can buy a clean t-shirt and underwear and stuff. And then at least when I go back to the airport and I'm going to go on standby, it'll probably, I'm, I'm going to waste another day at the airport. So let me just get to run in before I go. Like most runners, 40 minutes is kind of like what I will call a run. If I yeah. run for less than 30 minutes, it's not a run. So 40 minutes is my minimum. You know, I have uh -huh. to say 40 minutes to make it a run. So I thought, okay, let me make it as easy as possible. 20 minutes out, 20 minutes back. So I looked at my watch, I started my stopwatch, and it was a brutally hot day. I remember it was, because I remember I'd come from the Swedish winter, and now it's the African summer, because you know, under the, on the equator, they have the opposite to us. Yeah. Yeah. So in November, it was boiling hot. Nairobi anyways, it's a hot city compared to most other places. So I start jogging up the side of the road in my street clothes, and they have these minibuses, they're called matatus, that drive around in Nairobi. And there's always room for one more person. They open, they stuff you in. And, you know, you can be like 10 people on a seat. There's people hanging on the doors. And it costs like five cents to go 20 kilometers, 10 cents. You know, it's like the cheapest thing. Isn't it? Yes. So I'm running up the road. And, of course, they think that I'm running for one of these matatus. So the matatu comes by my side and the door opens and the, the driver's saying, jump in, jump in. I'm like, no, I'm a runner. They laugh so much. They're like, you? <laughs> a runner? You know, because they're used to seeing the Olympians and yeah, yeah, yeah. everything. And they see this white person with a beetroot face, you know, pondering up the road, like jogging along. It was like, they were laughing so hard. So, you know, and, 
And then the driver is telling me, the, the conductor is saying, like, are you too mean? You know, you're too mean with your money. You don't want to pay five cents. And then another driver stops and says, like, oh, you know, yes, we have cars in Africa. Didn't you know? You know just all the bad jokes. Wow. Right, right, right. I was on the, the main road into Nairobi. So the traffic was just constant. It was like another bus would leave, another one would come. And they'd come with the same jokes. And it was just horrible. It was absolute. Cause I, and I was looking at my watch thinking, this, this is just the miserablest run in my life. I can't wait till I get to the 20th minute. Then I'm turning around. I'm going back to the airport and adios Africa. That's just, it's too much. Now, I'm looking at my watch and I was looking for a U-turn, a landmark. Shall I run to that tree? Or So it was about 18, 19 minutes. And I was thinking, okay, when I run up to that tree up there, that'll, that'll be 20 and then I can turn back to the hotel. Miserable, horrible, sweaty, jeans are chaffing. Couldn't have been not one. I can't think of one good thing about this day. I was just looking about where I'm going to turn and suddenly like a mirage across the road, like a TV commercial, a whole group of Kenyan runners cut across the road, followed by a guy on a bicycle, all in the same tracksuits, about 20 or 30 of them, like running across like this. And then they dive into the bushes and then go off and they're out of sight. I'm like, my God, was that like a dream or was that like a... So I <laughs> sprint ahead and I try and catch on the back of the group. I run and I catch on the back of the group and nobody says like, welcome or you know, yes or anything like that. But they're running like this and they're, you know, like the Newton's, uh, those Newton balls, and you go to some people's um, offices, they have those balls that go like, yeah, click, 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 click. It was that moment, I was looking at the way that they were running, it was like, tick, tick, tick. It was so beautiful to watch. And then of course it was me shuffling on the back, but it was just a dream of mine to be running with the Kenyans. And here I was on my first morning achieving it. It was like, wow, I'm doing it. Fantastic. So I was hanging. I didn't care what, you know, if I, even if they told me like, get off the back of the group, I was staying there and, you know, I was just going to stay as long as I could. We were running. Wow. And again, you know, I mean, I was surprised because in Sweden, when we go training, all of us, we cackle the whole time when we run. It's like, you know, we're talking the whole time. Yeah. Nobody, nobody said one single word. And I thought like, you know, maybe this is an everyday occurrence that a skinny white guy in street clothes starts running along in the group. But let me, <laughs> let me not question right now. After about two or three kilometers, we went around the corner and we came to a stop in this big green field. And there were these huge, massive olive-colored army tents and hundreds of runners, hundreds milling around. Some of them were jumping on, doing jumping jacks, jumping on, you know, tractor tires. Others were lifting little things. Other people were doing stretchings or stuff. Other people were just drinking tea. And I'd just come to run a heaven. And now when we came to a stop, all the runners start talking to me like, hey, man, what the hell are you doing? They're really, really friendly and saying, come on, grab a cup of tea. Come and sit down and talk with us. So about 12 of us were sitting down in the group and they're saying, why don't you come and train with us? You know, what? And I was telling them, listen, you know, I lost all my luggage. And I'm looking at people around. It was like Paul Tergat, who was then the world champion in cross country. There was oh, Mark and uh, I was in the NBA All-Stars. Yeah. I was just looking like, this is like a dream come true. And I said, wow. oh, well, you know, my, and they said, oh, don't worry about your stuff. They said, you know, you've come to the armed forces. In the 90s, this was before the, the big management groups had taken over and all, you have all these splinter training groups. Mm -hmm. And if you wanted to be a Kenyan runner to get out, you'd be a part of the armed forces That's and right. you train yeah. with this group. Mm -hmm. And so they said, you know, we have an army truck here. We're going to send an army truck to the airport. We promise you, we'll find your luggage. Don't worry. And what? they did. And my life just became... <laughs> 
Fantastic. So, you know, all my thoughts evaporated about the thought of flying back to Sweden and abandoning Kenya. So again, it was just good, good luck. That is, that is, uh, that is an amazing story. The fact that you ended up in, in literally Paul Tergott and Moses Tanui's, you know, in their group on that run in blue jeans. Um, that is fantastic. Toby, I have a little bit of a problem in that we're, I want to talk to you about Shoot for Africa and, and you have so many great stories. So I'm just going to say, like, I think if you're all right with it, I, I, there's probably a ton we're going to miss in between as far as how, you know, your experiences in Kenya. But can you talk to us a little bit about Shoot for Africa and what yeah. you've been doing? Because it's really remarkable. And I certainly don't want to like end our podcast without talking about this, this, this long project that you've been doing for the last 20 years. Sure. Do you want me to quickly say about the book or shall I leave the book? Oh, goodness. Go for it, sure. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> uh, yeah, let's hear a little bit. This is the, uh, oh, wait, you, you tell us, tell us briefly about the book. You can do it better than me. Okay. What inside the, and it kind of, it kind of transitions from A to B or something. Yeah. The, the camp, because um, one of the Kenyan secrets is that um, no distractions. You know, in this camp, there was no electricity. There was, um, you know, I remember we'd get a newspaper, we'd be about 30 guys, we'd all have one page of the newspaper, and we'd read the page and we'd pass it to our right, and then we'd wait for the next page. You know, that's how basic um, the, the nightlife was. There was no distraction at all. Mm -hmm. And Kenyan runners, they are the world champions at sleeping. Now, I sleep for about seven hours in the night, mm -hmm. and I'm very restless, and I can't sleep in the daytime. Now, we ran three times a day, which was a big shock to me. I, I was almost in a coma on the first day. But you get up in the morning at 5.30, you run at 6 o'clock, and then you go back and you lie in bed, you rest, and then at 8 o'clock, you get up and you, you, know, you have some breakfast or something a little bit. You go back to bed. Then at 10 o'clock, you go out for the serious training. So like maybe you'll go out at, um, you know, that's a hard tempo session. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Then 11.30, come back, you have lunch. And then you go back to bed in the afternoon. Then about five o'clock, you go for an easy jog in the afternoon. And then eight o'clock, you're back to bed. So what, basically what I'm saying was there was a lot of time when Kenyan athletes were sleeping where I couldn't have the ability to sleep. So I started just jotting down notes because I was just interested in you know, what I was doing. And so I was asking people, I was like talking to Moses Tanui and saying, like, mm -hmm. hey, Moses, you know, when you won the world championships, how was the week before that you did? And what was your thoughts? What was your mindset going into the race? And you know, what motivates you? And I was just interested myself with all these. And I was just taking down notes like this. And my notes grew because I had 400 athletes. And they were oh, not man. 400 athletes of, you know, meager caliber. These were the right. best runners in the world. So I come back to Sweden. And one person after the next keeps on asking me, Toby, you know, tell me, how do they train there? I'm like, Jesus, do I have to repeat this story 10 more times? I'm going to. So I thought, like, why don't I actually just put all the stuff down and write the book? You know, you never know. And I think the good luck that I had, there wasn't really a comprehensive book on Kenyan running. So right. I don't take any, any credit at all for my penmanship skills. It was really just, I was just narrating what I'd actually seen. Mm -hmm. And... I figured what I was going to do, I, was, I figured I'd get a rejection. If I send it into a, a publisher, they're going to send back and say, like, it's good, but all this is bad. So I wanted to learn the ropes and understand it before I jump into publishing. And I didn't know who is a publisher, who would publish this kind of stuff. So I looked at, of course, America is the place where everything goes on. So I looked in America, what's going on there? And there was this track and field news publishing that seemed to be the people that I should contact. 
So I just send them a chapter and I said, like, do you like this stuff? And like, am I barking up the wrong tree? Is it something? They said, we love it, but send the rest. So that's how I became a, an author, a really by mistake. And it was just, you know, but it was good luck because then it, I suddenly became yeah. an expert. And people were like, oh, this is, yeah. yeah. Well, you know, Toby, it's, it is kind of by mistake in that it, I would say not by, maybe not intentional, but, you know, you, you do have a, a tendency to sort of put yourself into unique situations and then and then just sort of be productive it seems like right like like find a way to to be positive about it and to do a little bit like like the, you could have just as easily not taken the notes and the fact that you did it gave you that gave you it, it was the necessary step to to give you that opportunity in the first place right so i i think that that that's one of the things i'm sort of taking away is like you you're in yeah. you're in iceland and it's like okay well you know, you're still, you're just sort of finding ways to be a little bit more positive, to do a little, to, to try to, you know, improve Christian's life or some, you know, some other aspect here. And, and, uh, and your willingness to, to actually go in and do it and move to Iceland, move to Kenya, do these things uh, is a prerequisite, I think, to taking that leap to say, you know what, like, I'm going to go on the adventure and trust that the experience will be worth it in and of itself. But then while you're there, you're laying the groundwork for future things. That's that, I'm, I'm not sure if I'm explaining my thoughts perfectly here, but I feel like there's a, there's a trend I'm, I'm sort of picking up in your, in your work. You're taking lessons out of these things and you're, and you're making these experiences productive as well as, as sort of just happening into them. Well, I like very much the way that you're putting it. I, I totally agree. <laughs> From now on, I'm going to go with that story. <laughs> Again, going back to when I was younger, I was lucky in that my grandfather was actually a lecturer of Nordic languages. But mm. when he was in university, he was taught by a man called Evie Gordon. And Evie Gordon's very, very good friend was J.R.R. Tolkien. And the two of them came together and formed the Viking Club that my grandfather was a member of the Viking Club. So wow. he used to sit listening to J.R. Tolkien and E.V. Gordon sit and discuss literature and Icelandic sagas. And my grandfather would translate sagas into English. And he actually wrote wow. an Icelandic dictionary. So I remember when I was about 13, uh, somewhere around there, Ava, Icelandic grandfather, Ava gave me a book and he gave me The Hobbit and I asked him, I said, are you in this book since you know the author? And I didn't know how big J.R. Tolkien was in those times. You know, I right. guess he was another writer. And he said, I'm not giving you a book. I, I'm paraphrasing. I can't remember the exact words he said. I'm not giving you a book. I'm giving you a ticket to find your own adventure. Mm. And I remember the theory was, you know, in life, you have to start your own adventure. You have to be the instigator of your own story. Life won't happen for you. You have to kind of be the the turn to make it happen. But then if you do turn all these interesting opportunities, like Bilbo Baggins, you know, he goes off in his walk and all these opportunities will open up to you. So I, I was lucky and I had that kind of, and I think you're right in that way that I always thought doing something, something will happen rather than uh, the other way of just thinking, okay, don't try this because, and also lucky in the fact that, you know, when I was going to Kenya, that it wasn't, a financial obligation. I think for most people, you know, a trip to Africa to do that, this going, oh my God, you know, it's the money and stuff like this. For me, being an athlete, it was, uh, it was an easy thing to do. So I had the good luck from it. And I, I mean, I grabbed the opportunities. So Shoe for Africa, did, was this just another one of those opportunities? Like you, you, there was something came up and you decided, oh, I'm going to, 
I'm just going to start doing this and it's grown into something much bigger. Well, funnily enough, the, the trip to Kenya in 95, which was the start of Shoe for Africa in some way, was the end of my running career in some way. Because before I went to Africa, I wanted to be a, a full-time runner. I wanted to put all my energies in it. And I clearly remember one day sitting with Paul Tegat in his apartment. And he told me, he said, I don't know whether he was like, you know, talking to me or whatever, or just using the analogy. And he said, there's too many chefs in the, co- in the kitchen. And I think he was talking to the fact that, you know, in Kenya, we were like, you know, 400 runners all going for about 10 spots. Mm-hmm. And he said, unless you want to give absolutely everything to running, you'll never make it. He said, you have to make that decision. Are you going to give everything or are you not? And I think, you know, for instance, when I look at now and the trainers in America that I admire and I can see doing, I see they have a, this great plan. Age of living was partying, you know, drinking traveling i would take competitions if it meant traveling i ran a marathon on top of the andes i mean i really that wasn't a career choice it was a choice to see the top of the andes i made all the wrong (laughs) decisions you know i mean i remember i ran a 1500 meters two days after running a marathon i i didn't do anything to be a better runner what i did was i did running to to perpetuate my lifestyle of wanting to be myself so when i was in kenya suddenly i was training them to be this you know had i been a good runner? Had, was there a chance to go to the Olympics? Had I been running the 354 in the mile like John was, then I'd have said, okay, then I have a chance to get to the Olympics or something like that. And I might have taken a different route. But I really realized I was kind of running as a hobby yeah. and just as a lifestyle. And I kind of felt guilty because I was seeing far more talented people than me in Kenya, well, who was, you know, far, far faster than me. And they were not having opportunities. Like, why was I the one with a Nike contract and I'm standing next to a guy who can't even get a pair of shoes, but, you know, Mm. can run 10 times faster than me. So I started to think, like, maybe my position in life is not to be the runner that I wanted to be. Maybe I can be the person that helps. Because I've always been able to put people together. I have a lot of connections. I know a lot of people around the world. Maybe I could be a plug socket type person. That's my position. And I can use running to be the connector to bring these all together. So that's when I started getting into Shoe for Africa, realizing, hey, I get all this stuff for free anyway. And my friends are sponsored too. Why don't we put it all in boxes and send it over to Africa? So that's how kind of I got into doing Shoe for Africa. And it didn't really have a name at that time. It was just a project. And yeah. one of my friends, Moses Kiptanui, was, was then, was, he's like the first man to run a sub eight minute steeplechase. Mm-hmm. And I'd send him shoes. I'd send Brother Calm shoes. And... I'd pick coaches or people, you know, other athletes who would then distribute the shoes. So it was more like a hobby than anything else. Now, the book Train Hard Win Easy sold out in the first couple of months and sold really well, kept on selling and kept on selling. And the publishers said, would you consider writing another book? Would you consider doing a second with the same title, but the second edition? So I was like, mm, maybe, maybe that. But this was in 1999. And everyone in 1999 was talking about what are you going to be doing on December the 31st, 1999. <laughs> right. yep. And I remember, I remember once that. when I was in uh, Ngong, looking at Kilimanjaro, I didn't even know it was Kilimanjaro then. It was like, and somebody telling me, yes, yes, that mountain is in Tanzania. So I thought like, always had in the back of my mind, one day I should go up the top of Kilimanjaro. And I thought, well, I'm going back anyway to write a book. Why don't I run up the mountain sit on top of the mountain on 1999 and open my can of Guinness 
as the centuries change, then I have the coolest kind of, you know, <laughs> when we're talking, what are you doing in Sweden? And saying, like, what are you doing on music? Well, I think I'm just going to sit on the top of, you know, it was, and it was kind of this non-thought-out plan that I should actually do. And I was dating a girl at the time who had no interest in going on the mountain or running at all. So she said, if, if I compromise to you of going to Africa, you've got to compromise and have a, a holiday in somewhere nice for the new year. So my whole life, I never compromise. I, it's always my way or the highway. And I thought like, no, maybe, maybe just for once, I should you know, be the decent right. person and twist my arm. And okay, like, and I really didn't want her to come on this training camp anyway. She was insisting because she wanted to be a runner. And she was thrilled, I think, by the chance of meeting the runners. And I knew it was nothing for her. She wasn't going to like it. You know, the conditions were going to be very brutal. Right. This wasn't luxury living. But against my better judgment, I said, okay, you know, Okay, let's end. And she said, I want to go to Zanzibar. And the name Zanzibar just kind of had a nice ring. And I thought, well, hmm, yeah. that's not so bad anyway. It's kind of exotic. It kind of promises adventure. And I kind of like, okay. So we said, we'll go there for the new year. So we went to Kenya. We went to the training camp. It was horrible. She just spent the whole time inside complaining about how bad it was. <laughs> I tried to run as many hours of the day as possible so I wouldn't have to meet her. And then I was <laughs> oh, no. interviewing runners the other time. So... It was fine because, you know, and I'd like throw a stone at the door to kind of wake her up when it was time for breakfast. And I, we lived separately inside the holiday. Right. But she was very, very excited about this trip to Zanzibar. And then she'd arranged that a friend of hers, um, a hedge funder from New York, would fly in for the New Year celebration. So I thought, perfect, I'll persuade the friend then to fly her back to New York. And then I'll go back to Kenya by myself. Because, I mean, she, to be fair to her, she, I don't think she knew what she was getting in for. And it was, you know, we're living yeah. very brutal. Not brutal. I mean, they were fine for me. I don't care, you know, bathing in a bucket and eating dried bread for breakfast. That's not an issue for me. I mean, I do it up until today. <laughs> so, <laughs> not an issue. So, I remember we took the bus from Nairobi to Dar es Salaam. And the bus we left Nairobi is beautiful. It's got, like, you know, windows and stuff. Halfway in Arusha, we changed and then we went into a bad bus. And from then on, the trip was just terrible. And I remember in Arusha, I tried to see Simon Robert Nali's parents. Mm. Because Simon Robert Nali, he lived in Arusha. And he died. He died in 1994. Mm. A car, wing mirror, hit him on the back of the head, knocked him down. And he recovered. Four days later, he died from serious head injuries. Oh. And I just thought, let me go and visit his parents and tell him how much he meant to me and, you know, our friendship. And I was actually good friends with two of his brothers, Francis, who I was giving running shoes to, and then Egbert, who was living in the, an apartment of mine in Stockholm, staying when I was doing my running there. So I was friends with the family, and I thought, you know, it'd be a nice way to just tie everything in with the holiday. I didn't find the family. And anyway, we went to Dar es Salaam, and then we took the bus over to Zanzibar, and again, the same kind of format. I tried to run as much as possible and she tried to sit on the beach as much as possible. And it kind of, it worked out. And the running was a highlight of the day. And then December the 29th, I remember it clearly. In the morning, we did some touristy things. And then I was waiting for her to come down the stairs and to get trained for you know, getting ready. And I was thinking like, where should we run today? Where should we, in a different place? And I decided, let's take our little motorbike and drive out of town and pick a secluded place where I don't have to run with her because I didn't want to have to run inside the town center with her because she was, you know, number one, I'd have to run at her pace. Number yeah. two, she hated everything about Africa. Number <laughs> three, she told me all the time. 
So we got on the bike and I was just driving like one eye on the traffic, the other looking for a place to run. And I saw a green opening next to a big tall building. I thought, perfect, because a tall building will give me navigation for when I'm doing my run so I can find my way back. And the green field, she can run around the green field. And I noticed there was a secluded beach to my left. So I said, okay, you run on the field. And I see some other joggers. I said, go and join them. And before she could even negotiate or say, can I run with you? I sprinted off at top speed. And I was doing a tempo run on that day. So I was like trying to get into the pace anyway. And the beach was, I don't know if either of you ran on the beach, but when the beach is flat completely, it's really good. You know, if it's boggly, you can't run at all. Right. Yeah. This, this was like a running track. It was just, I put my foot down. It was like pushing me off. It was just, wow. the sand had leveled it. It was super, but absolutely, I couldn't have got the better running track. Mm. To my left was a corridor of um, palm trees. And to my right was the Indian Ocean. And the sun was coming, you know, it was kind of dropping at about, you know, it'd be going down at about three o'clock, four o'clock in the afternoon. So the sun was on its way down and it was sprinkling gold rays over the, the, the water. It was just, you, if I'd had a camera, it was like the shot to take on her. And I was just running thinking like, isn't this fantastic? I was in my best form because I'd just been training with, um, you know, the world's best runners in Ngong. So I was flying along the beach like this and two dolphins were jumping up from the water to my right. It, was, it couldn't have been more perfect. What? And they were dying no water. I was just watching them chase. They were about 30 meters out of the sea. And they were just kind of like drawing me, urging me to run faster and faster. And you know those days when you're in shape and you just, you know, every stride, you just don't feel tired. It's just you yeah. can keep the legs going like a bicycle wheel. Yeah. And after about 15 minutes, I saw two guys coming out of the beaches towards me. I just caught it out of the left of my eye at about 11 o'clock in front, you know, when they looked up. So I was like, oh my God, you know, they're just coming to say hi. And, you know, in East Africa, they're the friendliest people. I've just, I met such wonderful, hospitable, nice people. And every lesson in my life has been good people. So when I saw these people, I really just presumed they were just coming to say, you know, hey, what are you doing here running? We want to greet you, you know, happy new year type of stuff. And as much as I wanted to stop running, I thought, okay, let me stop. So I came to a, a walk and then I stood still. And as they came closer and closer, I remember thinking it was odd. One of them had like a three-piece suit jacket. And I was thinking like, it was so hot. Like, why is he wearing a jacket? And the other one had got this jacket over his arm. So when they came to a stop in front of me, I said first in English, you know, like, hey, how, how are you doing? Hi, guys. And they looked at me like I was a space cadet. So then I said in Swahili, like, you know, how can I help you? And one of them then, the, the shorter one, the one right in front of me, he had, the, you know, this jacket on. He put his hand in front and he pulled out this big machete. It was like this long. And he went like this, down on my head. Just, and it all happened in a nanosecond. It happened so quickly, you know, he pulled it down. And I realized just at the last minute what was happening. So I put my hand up like this to stop the strike coming. And you probably can't see on the camera now, but it's from here up until here, I have a scar. Yeah. That, that's where the the blade came down and blood, you know, came in front of my eye. What I didn't realize, the one next to me had like a homemade baseball bat. And so he had actually got the, the jacket off and he swung as hard as he could and he hit me against the head. So he knocked me out. So the moment that the blade came and, you know, cut my wrist open, my skull got smashed. So I went down on the sand. I fell down there, blacked out. I don't know how long I was lying on the sand but they took off my watch, then they took off my sunglasses, then they took off my left shoe, and then they were trying to untie my right shoe when I woke up. 
So I'm lying on the sand and I can hear them laughing behind me. And I remember I'd knocked myself out once as a kid and I was usually oh, groggy. This time I was not groggy. I realized what was happening. And I thought, get up and defend myself else you're going to die here. So I jumped up and I started fighting. And the one with the machete immediately got up and he started waving around with his machete. And I was using my arm now, the one that's cut, yeah. as a sword. And I was hitting like this. And then the one behind, who I was not really that concerned about with the club, was hitting me. But he kept on catching me on the legs because I was jumping around. And then I realized I could use my height advantage because I had a better re reach. And I kind of jumped on top of the guy with the machete, knocked him over. And I managed to grab his wrist and I managed to pull the machete out of his hand. Mm -hmm. Now, when I had the machete, I became the aggressor. So I was kind of waving it around going, okay, better off now. Okay, you know, now I've got that. And now they're jumping back. And my mother, who used to take me to everything and make sure that I did everything, once upon a time, she'd taken me to fencing lessons. So I knew how to fence and do the on guard parade and stuff like that. So I was very good at like dancing around. And they were freaked out because I was jumping around like a, yeah. like a Johnny Depp on a TV screen. <laughs> <laughs> and they were like freaked out. They were like, hey. So they were going like, hey, no, 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 stop, stop, please. Just, just give us a shoe. And he said, I beg your pardon. He said, no, no, give us your shoe. And I said, this is a robbery. You know, I said, the shoe belongs to me. So they said, well, give us a knife because the knife belongs to us. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> you don't understand what's going on here. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Are you kidding me right now? I, That's I crazy. Right here. I've got blood pouring down my arm from here. It's all blood. I've got blood dripping down my face like this. And I'm furious. I'm like, you know, if you want, just come right at me now. I'll, you know, I'll give you the blade, but you have to get it first. Yeah. So now they start swearing at me, calling me a bad man, everything like this. But they realize the, you know, the, the fight is over. So they turn and they start walking away. So I'm still standing there like Johnny Depp, dancing around with my, my sword. <laughs> Watching going, you come back, I'll slice your head, blah, blah, blah. blah. <laughs> and then I think, okay, let me assess my injuries. And in the shock, I looked at my wrist and I thought my hand is going to drop off. Oh, God. Because I've got these stringy white things coming out. I could see oh. the bone. Yeah. And I was like, my God, if I shake like this one more time, my hand is going to fall off. Now... I can see blood coming down. My chest has got blood on. My legs got blood. And I'm like, oops. So I put my hand to my face just to try and see what the injury is. And I'm dreading going north because I realize there's something, you know, I'm going up like this, up, up, up. And I'm like, oh, my God. And my hair is clotted in blood. Yeah. And then suddenly I get to the wound and it goes like, so I have a big dent in my head. Oh, and I realize my. I've smashed my skull. I'm like, this is more serious than I thought. Now for the first time, I'm afraid. And I'm really... I am alone on the beach. I don't know what to do. And I'm like, I, I think the best thing for me to do is lie down on the bed. I mean, lie down on the sand and have a little sleep because I'm not ready for this right now. So with my good hand, I put my hand on the sand and I start to go down like this towards the sand. And I'm literally about seven or eight inches away from the, my face touching the sand. And I have an out of body weird experience. And it was very strange because it felt like somebody coming with a bullhorn and screaming, get up, get up. You're not supposed to end here. And it was such a shock because, you know, I'm, I wasn't religious. I wasn't like, you know, thinking this. And up until today, I mean, I know it was myself, but it was myself saying it to myself. It was so weird that it sounded like somebody was right by my side telling me this is not because I was ready to sleep. I, that was yeah. my plan to sleep. I think if you fall asleep, that's it. It's that yeah. would have been dead because yeah. I lost yeah. so much blood. Yeah. Oh, I mean, the, there's blood all over. 
I, I'd lost so much body blood and my heart should have been racing because I was running at five minute mile pace along the beach for the last 20 minutes. Why? Right. Yeah. So your body's just pumping. I've been fighting. Yeah. Why oh would I want to sleep gosh. at this time? But because I was just about, you know, and then this mind was telling me, like, get up. So now I felt really scared because I stood up. I was like, wow, yeah, I was going to, I was going to bleed to death. That's the body was cramping down. Like this. Yeah. And I thought, what do I do? And now my eyesight in my right eye started to go. I started to see stars in front like this, the stars. And the pain inside the skull yeah. was like being inside a tumble dryer and having my head hit the, hit the metal like this. And every time the heart went beat, I could feel this big, big pulsing pain here. And I was like, this is horrible. I, this is a time when I, I want to sit down and cry and I need somebody to help me. And there's nobody here. So oh I think I'm God. about two or three miles away from the, the beach. If I walk, I'm probably going to collapse on the way and die. If I start running, my heart's going to beat faster. More blood's going to come out of this wound here. More yeah, blood's yeah, going to yeah. come out of here. And I'll bleed to death. But I knew if I, was going to, if I was going to live, I have to run. Because you know when you run in a park and you, you run and then you meet somebody who's walking at the speed and then you say, how have you only gone 100 meters when I've gone 10 miles? Yeah, yeah. And I realized it would take me forever to walk. And especially in my state right there. So I got my singlet and I tied it around my wrist to stop the, the blood coming here. And I just figured out, let me just there. And I've never been one for yoga. But I've heard these people say that, you know, if you practice yoga, you can reduce your heart rate and mm -hmm. you can stop your breathing or slow your breathing. Yeah. Sorry, not stop, of course. <laughs> 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 so with the machete in my hand, just in case, because I didn't know that the guys could be hiding in the trees, coming and waiting for me to drop, you know, to get the other shoe because, you know, they're now useless in one shoe each. I set off running with my Nike Pegasus, one shoe, and this is why it's called Shoe for Africa. I start running down the beach with my bare foot on my left foot and then my shoe on the other, saying yoga oms, om, om, on the most painful. And when people tell you, run to save your life, I can tell you, <laughs> if you want to discover pain, that was the most painful run I've ever done in my life. It was, oh. I, I didn't think I could make a step after I'd made a step. So every time I made a step, I thought, is this my last? And then the next one, is this my last? And I was running and running and I didn't see any. I just kept on going and I was using the sea as a, a barometer of which way I should go because my eyesight was all fuzzy. I could yeah. barely see. And I was, just kept on looking for the shape of this tall building. When I came into the area, just before I came to the tall building, I met two people on the beach and I ran towards them, covered in blood with my machete, oh. screaming help. They stood up and ran away from me. Because, wait, wait, wait. Because you had the machete. You had the machete. <laughs> I had the machete. I was covered in blood. I would have ran from myself. If I <laughs> but when you really want help in the world, and sometimes people won't help you, you know, they... So I cut off to try and get to this tall building. And I was so blind, I ran into a barbed wire fence. <coughs> oh, I didn't no. even see the barbed wire fence. I ran straight into it. It was about hip height. I got my left, no, my right leg over. And then I tried to continue running. I'd even forgotten about my left leg. And so my left leg dragged over the, uh, off, the, over the, what, the barbed wire. Yeah. But the pain was all in my head. And I was like, oh. you know what? It was such a, a weird sensation. But my whole dream now was get back to the bike, get back to safety, and you, yeah. you're done. I get back to the bike and I just start screaming the girl's name, hoping that, you know, she'll come. And she, she's coming, but she's stopping when she sees me. She's not, because she's like, what's this? He was white when he left. Now he's red. <laughs> what's right. going on? She's mm. coming cautiously towards me. And then 
actually come, I just say, come, 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 help me. Because no one, no one is coming to help us. You know, there's other people there, but no one is stepping forward. I say, you have to take me to hospital right now. And she said, I don't know how to drive the bike. Because yeah, the bike had oh, gears. God. She says, I don't know how to do the, the gears. I like it. So I was like, oh my God. So I took my singlet, I loosened my singlet, I put my hand through it. So I mm. tied this bad hand onto the handlebar so I could rev the engine with that. And, you know, I've been driving motorcycles since the age of 12. So, I mean, I can do it in my sleep. And luckily, by the good luck, they'd stolen my left shoe. Because something I can't do is I can't kickstart a bike in flip-flops. I know that because I've tried it. <laughs> big bruise to prove it. So I have my, my right foot shoe. Sorry. So I was able to, and thank goodness, the bike started on the first kid kick mm, mm. so then with her on the back i drove and i just figured like we'd drive into town and i'd look for a, a medical institution and initially i was driving about 10 miles an hour and i was using the white line down the center of the road and i just kept on pressing the horn 10 seconds just to alert people even though obviously people could see i was a mess and driving down as i drove down towards stonetown to the, the center of zanzibar this guy on a bicycle seeing how badly injured i was came cycling towards me and he cycled towards me and he said like follow me i'll take you to a medical clinic oh my goodness so i started following him we drive down to this uh, in the center of stone town we're driving down the road and he's pointing it's there at the bottom of the road but i realized now we're going down a slope i can't operate the the brake on the my hand doesn't work and the foot brake is not working it's not stopping us so i tell the girl on the back we're in fourth gear now i'm going to crunch down the gears to first to slow it down but jump off the back because i'm going to crash into the wall so we were going at no speed, but literally I had to drive into the wall to stop the bike. Oh my God. <laughs> Crash down on it, but I don't care because I'm now at the clinic. When I was 11 years old, I fell out of the roof of a theater, at the theater where I, I grew up. And yeah. I smashed every bone from here to here. And I had to have a pin going through my arm and be in traction for months. And I remember going to the hospital, you know, and I had the best treatment. My parents were hippies. They didn't have normal food. The mm -hmm. hospital had normal food. And then my parents didn't have a television. In the hospital, we had a television at the end of the bed. It was like a hotel <laughs> at the best time. So my views of hospitals were like, you know, I was so happy to be at this medical center. I just couldn't mm. wait. Come to the medical center. I push the door open. And my God, the room is empty. There's a wooden bench and a Somali nurse standing there. And then that's about it. I'm like, you know, where's all the fluorescent lights, a smell of antiseptic, you know, the, right. well cards and stuff. There was nothing there. I was like, a, and this Somali nurse comes across and she's like, oh my God, oh my God. And I'm like, I'm going to be okay, right? Uh, you know, I just wanted some reassurance from yeah. the person. That, and she's looking, she's going, very bad, very bad. So then oh. I stopped asking if I was going to be okay. And she just literally started <laughs> pouring water on top of my head, on my head. Yeah. And she said, oh, the doctor, we, she said, we have one doctor, but he's gone because it, I was, it, it was during Ramadan and he'd gone to break the, the fast. Yeah. Said, Don't worry, he'll be coming back after he's had his dinner. So I said, okay, I'll, I'll hang around. And all I wanted to do was tell the doctor no blood transfusion because at the time now I'd progressed with doing shoes and I've now started to do um, AIDS awareness with Shoe for Africa. Right. And I was hearing about how the, trans, uh, the blood transfusions a major cause for people getting infected in Africa. And people are saying, do not get a blood transfusion when you're in Africa. This was in the 90s. Else, you know, it's, uh, it's how you're going to contract the, the virus yourself. Mm -hmm. So I figured out all I need to do is stay awake until the doctor comes, tell him no blood transfusion, 
then I'll wake up in a, a red, red cross plane and I'll be, you know, medevaced over to Europe and I'll get all this treatment. The doctor comes in and I'm like putting up my arm like this. No, blood transfusion. He's laughing his head off. He's like, blood? Are you kidding me? He says, I don't have antibiotics. I don't have anesthetics. Blood, he says, I have a needle and a thread. Maybe I can sew up your wounds and clean up your wounds for you. But, you know, hey, man, we, we don't have that kind of stuff here. Wow. And as this was a big shock because this was how I actually saw African healthcare for the everyman, not for the, you know, the UNICEF worker who goes to the public, I mean, the private hospitals or the, you know, the person right, who has, right. you know, this is the everyday person that works, walks through the door for, you know, the normal, the person that I was, if it was in this country. So I realized, wow, this is a incredible difference in uh, lives here. So they, they cleaned me up and then he said, I suggest that you sleep here the night just so we can keep, you know, keep an eye on you, just check you like this. And I was like, fine. And also it would separate me from that girl and we we're having arguments all the time. So <laughs> I was glad to get her out, you know, get her out of the place. It was like, stress me. And she was happy also to get out and go back to the hotel. And I just lay there the whole night thinking like, why the heck did I stop running? You know, why yeah. did I stop running when those guys couldn't have caught me? Impossible. And, you know, so I brought it upon myself and I was kind of disappointed in myself that I didn't, but I'm such an optimistic person. I always, I think, used to see the best in every situation. Mm -hmm. And I just wasn't used to having, I was sheltered. I was very lucky in the fact a lot of good things had happened to me in life. And I wasn't used to meeting a lot of bad or dangerous people. And I just didn't really see it happening. I mean, I was naive in that fashion that I should have been. Next morning, I was kind of shouting like, hello, glass of water, breakfast. Nobody answered. I realized I was alone in the building. So I thought, let me just walk back to the hotel. And I left. I remember I pushed open the door and it was hard to walk down the stairs, not up the stairs. It was hard to walk down. I was like, you know, something seriously is still wrong with me. And I walked out in the street and the sun was so blinding hot. It was almost making me cold, get dizzy. Mm -hmm. And I saw the bike still lying on the street. No one had picked it up. And I thought, maybe I should try and pick it up. But the fact that it actually, I couldn't even walk down the stairs made me think, okay, let me just leave it. It was a rental anyway. So I started walking towards my hotel and I knew Stonetown. Stonetown's a very small center, and, but I kept on getting lost. And I'd have to ask people all the time. And if they said left or right, I didn't understand what left or right was. Mm. And I was like, shoot, something is wrong beyond the, the normal. I, I just don't have an injury here. Something is wrong. I walked back into the hotel lobby and there were three beautiful ladies, you know, with the little burkas who would always be there when you came in. And when you came in, they were kind of usually looking at you and welcoming and smiling. They looked at me and looked away and started, you know, uh, alerting things. Because, of course, I had a big bandage that the blood had seeped through on my yeah. head. And a bandage around me with blood seeping out. And I guess what happened, people must have thought that I was in a street fight or something. Because, right. you know, tourist goes out, drinks late at night. So I thought, okay, well, I went across. And unfortunately, there was no elevator. and We were on the third floor. So I went to the stairwell and I started crawling on my hands and my knees. And I crawled up, and every time I got to up a flight of steps, every six steps or something, I lay there to get some rest and before doing the next. And eventually I got to the top floor, crawled on the floor, you know, opened the door. I went into the hotel room, and she was asleep on the bed, and she's like, oh, good, glad, you know, you, you know, it's time to get back to normal and stuff like this. <laughs> oh, my and gosh. Then became the journey of absolute horrible, horrible stuff. Like, I remember in the afternoon, she said, oh, you have to take me out shopping. 
And I was like, I really don't feel up to shopping. She goes, I will be a man. I'm going, you want me to be attacked too? If I go out on the streets, I'm going to be attacked. Like, come on, come on, be a man. You've got to. So I went traipsing with her when she wanted to go and buy some Indian cloth or some African cloth print or something. I remember it was just misery. It was just hard to actually even step a step forward. And I didn't tell her about the mental issues, but I mean, of course, she could see the, the physical issues. And then that night she wanted to eat out in a restaurant. So we went to the restaurant. Then I refused to eat because I just didn't have a hunger. Yeah. And she was like, are you going to embarrass me? And, you know, da, da, da. And I can't eat here by myself. And I said, okay, can we get room service or back? At oh, no, no, no. I came here on this whole holiday to see these things. I, now I'm here. I want to. It was just, we were just having argument after argument after argument. At the same time, I was deteriorating. Mm. Next day when I woke up, I started to get shooting pains down my left side of my body. And I was having problems dressing myself, putting my clothes like this T-shirt with a logo on the front. The logo would have been on the back. Everything was becoming confused. So the first place we stopped at, there was a Scandinavian guy who had a, a resort, which stayed at the first place. We weren't in the, in the center for Stonetown. We were up in the, the country in Zanzibar. So I called him up as a Finnish guy and I said, listen, is there a good medical person you can put me in touch with because I'm in trouble here? He said, there's an Indian doctor by the name of Dr. Goran Mehta. I suggest you go and see him because he's more than a doctor. And I remember that sentence, more than a doctor, and that's what I wanted to hear. You know, I felt that's what I needed. So I called up the doctor, and he said, come and see me. And this was the 31st of December, New Year's Eve. So he said, come and see me at my house. And luckily, his house was literally 500 feet away from the, the hotel. So I staggered up to his house, and he cleaned, cleaned my head. He cleaned the wound. And then he also gave me antibiotics, which was a relief. And said, you know, patch you up and yes, you're in a bad way, but you're, you'll probably be okay until you wait till your, your flight ticket. And I told him, I said, unfortunately, I'd already called the airlines to try and see if I could bring my ticket back earlier. And also my flight was, remember, from Nairobi. It wasn't from Dar es Salaam. And he, all the flights were like closed for the holidays. So, you know, call back on Monday, January the 3rd, you know, we, our offices are closed. And then the international flights were all full because of, you know, the millennium grossly overbooked for everyone wanting to leave after the millennium. So everyone's advice was just sit out the millennium, just, you know, wait until your flight comes like this. And the Indian doctor said, why don't you come and spend the night or spend the evening and spend the new celebration with me for the crossing of the millennium? And I thought, well, this is a good idea anyway, just to be in the arms of the doctor, just in case anything goes wrong. Mm -hmm. Fast forward to that evening, 10.30 at night, we were sitting there and it was very painful even to have a conversation. I could barely even concentrate on listening, let alone talking. And everybody was kept trying to drag me into the conversation because they realized, you know, I was the elephant in the room, you know, the sick person. Yeah. <laughs> and it was like, yeah, you know, it, it was just like, I, was like I, I just want to die. I just want to be by myself. I just, I don't want to be in this social city where everyone's talking. So I, I pretended that I wanted to go to the toilet and we were on the roof deck and it was just so gorgeous, you know, on Stonetown, on this roof deck and all those little village houses around like this. And I just said, no, 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 let me just go to the toilet. And I walked down downstairs to the first floor or whatever it was, the top floor. And instead of going to the bathroom, I went to his living room and it was a dark, it was completely dark inside there. And I hid behind the sofa. I thought uh, no one will find me there. So it was a hardwood floor. And I just went to lie on the floor and hid behind the sofa. And I promise if I'd had two pills, one had been the end of it, because I'd had no painkillers. And, you know, the skull is still cracked open. 
maybe I'd have just taken it to get away from the pain because it was so, so painful. It was just mm -hmm. constant throbbing, throbbing, throbbing. And I just lie on the floor thinking, I've been giving away shoes for the last five years. Why out of all the people was I the person to be stopped and now I'm going to lose my life for one shoe? Yeah. So it was a pretty pity party and I'm lying there thinking, what a way to see the new year. After about 20 minutes, I figured he must have realized something was wrong, you know, when I didn't come down. So he came downstairs, Dr. Meta, looking for me. He walked into the living room. He walked straight past me and he went to the mantelpiece and he put his arm on the mantelpiece. And above the mantelpiece was an Indian god, a picture. I don't know what denomination of, you know, which particular god it was because the Indians have many, many different gods. But it was one god picture up on uh, the wall. And he told me, he said, Baba has brought you to me. And I'm like, what? Lying on the floor and behind the sofa. I'm thinking like, he's going to ask me like, what the hell are you doing hidden on the floor behind my sofa? Like, <laughs> but instead now he's lying there and he's talking to the picture. He's saying, Baba has brought you to here. This is part of your journey. There is a reason why you came to Africa. And so now I'm standing up. I'm kind of like walking across to him. I'm like, yeah, I was robbed. I was beaten. I, was, I, I know the reason my beautiful Nikes and I had the most beautiful Pegasus Nikes. Let me tell you, silver. <laughs> They've got this little glint on them. I would have robbed somebody for them myself. They were the <laughs> <laughs> My favorite Nikes. I love the Pegasus. Oh, yeah. And me, that, that was the first shoe I had in 1990. The, the best shoe ever. So I'm looking at this and he's telling me, yes, he says, there's a reason why. He says, you know, you don't understand now, but there's a meaning why you came to Africa. This is yeah. part of your journey. And yeah. it was the first time since Ava, my grandfather, had talked about this idea that we're on a journey. And I thought, like, how is it? I mean, it's, it's too weird. And I thought, wow. so what is this meaning then? Okay, so I'm here. I've been robbed. So what is it? And yeah. am I going to find it in the next 10 minutes? Because I'm going to die soon anyway. <laughs> <laughs> and he says, no, no, no. It, it's part of your journey. You're, it'll be revealed to you later why you came to Africa. It'll be revealed to you. And so... Long story short, went up to the top of the roof deck now and I sat there and you know, three o'clock in the, I stayed awake till three o'clock and then uh, it got worse and worse. It took me 11 days. I, I mean, because we've got time short here. I won't talk about the oh, whole trip. Sure. It took me 11 days to get brain surgery. And by that stage, I was almost going crazy because I could not get out of Africa. I and mean, it was day after day. I broke my collarbone. After that, I had more terrible incidents. I was just covered in, I mean, I was like a walking death when my I goodness. finally... So on January the 8th, no, January the 9th, when I woke up in Charing Cross Hospital in London, yeah. I really felt I was in heaven because I felt like I'd been given a second chance mm -hmm. because Simon had had four days and then he died. I had 11 days. Why was I given 11 days for a worse injury? Four doctors in Charing Cross, two, four neurosurgeons told me I should have been dead within four days. And what? So you start to think, am I here for a reason? Am I here for a purpose? Long story short, I said, okay, and now I have to do something with my life. I went back to New York and then I fell in love with the American dream. I forgot about charity because I came to New York. I got on the board of directors of the New York Roadrunners Club. I was winning all the races in Central Park. I was like a known author now. As a, I was coaching like all the top teams. I was the first coach for the Nike, uh, Nike Run Club team. I was a coach for a fashion institute. I was 
everything to do with running, I was doing it. I was coaching all these conflicting teams. I was like, I didn't matter. <laughs> Whatever I wanted, I was doing the lectures for the New York City Marathon. Whatever mm -hmm. I wanted to do, it, everything was going right. And just because of, um, I lost all my possessions, every single one, I had to kickstart my life again. I started coaching just to earn some money because I could have gone back to Europe where I had free health insurance and everything. But again, I don't go backwards. I always go forwards. So I'm stuck in New York. I don't have any clothes. She's got all my possessions. And I think, how am I going to reinvent myself? So the feeler team, Fred Tressler, he's called, had been mm -hmm. contacting me, asking me, do you want sponsorship? And so he sent me a, a pirate's chest worth of clothes. So I was back into clothes. And then I rented an apartment on um, First Avenue from a friend of mine who he had an apartment. I rented one of the rooms. He had a two bedroom. So I rented his other one. And I started running like a crazy person. And I started running all these little local races. And funnily enough, I, I, I found it very difficult to train because I had a huge, I still had a lot of headaches from the, yeah. the brain surgery. You know, once you have, I had metal plates put inside my skull and having that, it changes your perspective. It also changes how you can actually move your head mm -hmm. and everything. I got incredible dizziness and I felt I couldn't really train and push to pain anymore. I could just train for a, but being a personal coach, I was doing the, where you run alongside people. Yeah. So I was keeping in shape, just, I mean, not really keeping in shape because I was running at 10, 11 minute mile pace with them, but I was running three hours a day with clients, which got me money to kind of put me back on my feet again. But the New York dream was just fantastic. And suddenly by good luck, I, I was meeting the most interesting people. I was meeting film stars and stuff like this, mm -hmm. being invited everywhere to these parties and just, and being writing for magazines also, I was writing for magazines. And when you do this, you meet also interesting people. So again, I was living the life fantastic. Now the New York Roadrunners asked me, will you be the elite uh, comeback runner for the New York City Marathon? I said, I'm not elite, I'm not. But they said, it doesn't matter. They said, there's a new concept, it's called charity running. And nobody was a charity runner in New York. Well, very few people in the year 2000. It didn't exist at that time. But he said, if you run, we're gonna, there's a donation of $10,000 that's coming to the Roadrunners Club and all you need to do is come to the finishing line and be the elite comeback runner of the New York City Marathon. So I was like, that mm. sounds fine. No problem, I can do it. Even though I was not even sure that I could run a marathon because I basically had just come out of, you know, I was in my rehabilitation stage like this and I was only running short little races. But, so that introduced me into charity running and I had a mentor who was the head of this healthcare company who was making the $10,000 donation. And she made me the most important thing. She looked after me. She was all the time, she was asking, how is your project in Africa? How are you doing this? All this stuff like this. The whole time, everything was just about me. Every time we met, we met in, I remember one time we met in the Tavern on the Green and she was talking about, you know, how the race was going to be. And her cell phone was ringing the whole time. You know, she's a big, big executive, you know, the CEO of this company. She didn't even once glance at the phone, let alone pick it up. And I was thinking like, how nice that she's actually, you know, she's making me the priority. And remember the day of the race came and I came to the finishing line and she's standing there on the finishing line, welcoming me there. And she takes me and I give her my medal and I'm telling all about my story and stuff like this. And, you know, again, all about me. Three weeks later, she died. She was suffering from cancer. And oh, wow. it was a big slap in the face because my whole life, back to when I stubbed out that cigarette, I decided I was going to do something meaningful with my life. And every single time I tried to do something of meaning and always been distracted. And I always went back to this, you know, gypsy 
lifestyle living not as a runner but you know somebody just running to perpetuate the living style yeah and i thought like i didn't even ask her once i mean you know i asked her how you i was without any depth the kind of stuff and i thought what kind of person am i and it reminded me of incidents that happened in africa once i was there on that trip in 1995 when i've met people with absolutely nothing to give who gave me everything yeah. and she gave me so much so much time so much thought and i just it made me feel like a real shallow person and i recommitted i said i really need to do more than just sending these shoes i need to step up the program but of course being the king procrastinator i did nothing <laughs> went back to my normal self until 9/11 now on 9/11 I'm running down the West Side Highway about eight o'clock with Martha Stewart, Martha Stewart's assistant, who is called Linda, because I was personal training her. And we're hold up, drop stop, stop. No,、yeah. sorry, Toby, you can't do that.、What? Martha Stewart? No, Martha Stewart's personal.、Assistant. That's what I'm saying. Martha Stewart's <laughs> assistant? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Keep going. I just want to make sure that I heard that right. Oh my gosh. What? So. So we drop through the through the World Trade Center, and I, I'm going to meet a, a risk analysis. He's a CEO of a risk company called、uh -huh. Linsingway, and he's always he's a wildly successful risk management CEO of this company called Dragonfly, and he's always late because he's flying from you know Singapore, he's going into Hong Kong, coming to New York, and I used to train him on the other side, on the east east side of Lower Manhattan. So I thought, shall I stop in Century Twenty One? Because I was now in my clothes rebuilding stage, because you know I'd lost all my possessions. But I thought, no, 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 no. Like you know, Linsing might be on time. So actually, me and Linsing were running at the same time when the first plane went into the, a couple of miles away, when the first plane went into the building. Wow! Thank goodness he was on time. So then, we start running to the building to go and see, you know, try and find out what happened. And like, I mean, you know, it's just, I mean, it's just, I had an apartment at West Broadway, that was. 200 meters to that side. He had an apartment on Rector Place, which was 200 meters on the other side of the World Trade Center. So both of us had valid reasons to be going back. I mean, his partner was actually in the office at the time. Oh goodness! And anyway, long story short, it was just it, that kind of event. And then I was coaching people who were actually from、um, the World Trade Center, who actually worked there. Luckily, all of them happened not to be in the office. The closest was a girl called Claudia,、mm -hmm. who was actually walking into the building. She worked for Annex. When it actually happened, it was just a weird kind of time. But it was again, it was looking at my life, going like, "What the hell am I doing? What am I? You know, I'm getting all these life lessons. All this stuff is going around me. I'm missing everything, but I'm not really. You know, there's a difference between intent and actually acting on doing something. I was full of intent. I said I was going to save the world. I said I was going to do this. I was going to do it. But my actions were pitiful,、mm. and I really need to actually. So it was. Then that I decide, come on, that's enough. So I stopped going to races. You know, I was doing so many. I think I did seventy-five races when I, after my head surgery, just you know, local races, trying to get back, you know, to get the pocket money and stuff. And I said, I need to stop doing races, and I need to put time on this shoe program and health program. It now evolved into a health program,、mm -hmm. and that's how I really launched into doing it more seriously because I was just fed up with myself, really, of realizing. All these opportunities were open for me, and I'd never really done what I kept on saying that I was going to do. So this was、and、like this is right,、uh, sometime near the end of 2000, because you're, you're mentioning you're mentioning 9/11, and right around this time, it's just really starting to click for you. Like, what am I doing with my life? So it's right around 2000 that you really started to shift your energy. 
Yeah, towards... and 2001 to 2000, 2002 and 2003, I start now telling everybody, send shoes to my apartment in New York. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to send them across. And that was a disaster because the post <laughs> office used to call me. I mean, literally people were sending masses and masses and it was my own money that I was using to send the shoes. And then yep. I started asking, I had a friend called Chris Bilski and she'd send me $500 every six months for doing, and I'd send, I'd give her the receipts for all the, the shoe postage. Mm. But my, my apartment was full of shoes. Like I cut up, I had a big seven piece sofa and I cut it up with a Swiss army knife and I lived on a third floor walk up taking piece by piece to give myself more space for storing the shoes. <laughs> and I was getting more and more smelly shoes. And I was so embarrassed that people came to my apartment because it stunk of smelly shoes. And I couldn't move the shoes fast enough to get them shipped out to Africa fast right, enough. Right, right. And then I started to realize, okay, let me think outside the box. Like, for instance, when there's so many Kenyans that come through New York and Tanzanians, I was sending shoes to Morocco, Tanzania. I was even sending shoes to the Tamil Tigers in Sri Lanka. I was sending shoes um, to oh. Ukraine. Although, it, I mean, Shoe for Africa is a name, but the shoes were going everywhere. Oh, I was wow. even giving okay. shoes to schools in New York and things. And so, for instance, like the runners, I remember when Catherine Endereba, she finished second in the New York City Marathon. Yeah. And the day after, I gave her a sack of shoes bigger than her. And she was like pulling it across the lobby of the Hilton to then when she flew back. So, you know, I look for every single way to cut down the expenses. Right. Because I was That's smart. really on a very income myself. But I was thinking, how can I keep this program? Because I hated charities. I didn't want to start a charity. And I wanted to do everything my way. Say so, like, how can I do everything, keep everything as shortcut as possible? So, I, I just want to say something. I like the fact that you thought like that because that's a lot of people have, uh, have a lot of uh, issues, and I've been involved in charity. Um, you know, I did my own like little inspired by you, my own like little uh, shoes for the soul is what I called it in San Diego. And I was, I just took my, my Nike expense money and gave shoes away to Sudanese refugees that happened to be living in the San Diego area. But when I got into the charitable world, just to say it really quickly, it's, it, it is a funny thing because charity is funny in that regard, because it does have a, it, there's a lot of negativity and unfortunately, a lot of negative things that happen with charity because of the way that the money is perceived to be spent. It going more towards overhead uh, and the staff than it, than and, and not so much towards the actual what we should call it, which is are like tangible, concrete things that we see getting done. And that's why I like the idea when you say it's specific projects that you guys are focused on. It's not a charity just to get money because. It's not about getting the money. It's about getting something done that's in the need. And it's a charitable organization that's saying, I will take responsibility for fulfilling this need or meeting this need for a specific group of people, right? And so I think that that's, I think that's brilliant that you were thinking that way um, from the beginning, you know, when you really, really said, I'm going to hunker down. Uh, with with this so that's i just want to say that's cool because i think that's that that alleviates a lot of issues that a lot of people would have if they could just see oh this is what we're going to do with the money and then you see it getting done i know we're, we're kind of cutting on time here but like the the the, the children's hospital that you built in, in in uh in kenya is a prime example of like you clearly saw how to do that the most effective way possible because that's the things that you've accomplished with you for africa's it's not small by any means, you know, it just obviously seemed to grow from that moment to what we saw. Like, I think it was, two, was it 2015 that the, the shoot for Africa yeah. um, children's hospital was actually built. 
Yeah, that's yeah. when it, it opened. And you're right. I mean, when I started the charity, which was really, you know, when I made it formalized, it was kind mm -hmm. of twisted with my arm behind my back. Because when you look <laughs> at African charities, I, I would go and see these African charities and all I saw was Westerners working for big salaries. And yeah. I was thinking that you're, you're supposed to be servants helping the people over there who are earning a dollar a day. And how yeah. does this equation work? And <laughs> why isn't it African? But there's many, many qualified African people here in America that could be doing those jobs oh, too for their own exactly. continent. Why aren't they being mm -hmm. paid? And mm -hmm. why are these, you know, oh yeah, we're helping Africa. Like, you know, number, so there's that kind of side to it. And I was like, I, I, I thought, let me look at how Mahatma Gandhi would have built a charity. And mm -hmm. I thought, if he built a charity, number one, he'd have Indians being the people making all the decisions. So I said, if I build a charity, all the people that are going to make the decisions, I, I can be the person to try and find the funds, but every single person that is making the decisions has to be. And if I'm going to employ one yeah. single person, it has to be a local. Because the one thing Africa needs, business infrastructure, jobs. So yeah. let me be... It, 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 it's the craziest thing. That's probably the number one thing that I learned from doing different charitable things since from the moment I turned pro uh, in 2005 uh, with, when I signed with Nike. I, I always wanted to give back. I was always trying to give back. And I learned very quickly that charity doesn't work if the people receiving the charity aren't actually invested. Mm themselves into it because all you're doing is putting a band-aid on a problem that requires um something way more substantial uh than a band-aid and and that's that is actually quite phenomenal that um i i love the fact that 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 was so clear for you because that's the only way that permanent change is going to happen that's the only way that a that solution that you're providing actually becomes a long-term solution if they themselves don't take up where you're that, that like boost uh, of, of help that you're giving them, you're only going to go back and repeat it. And that was the biggest problem I had with charities when I was doing stuff was I'm going, I'm trying to solve the problem. I'm, I don't want this to be, I don't want to have to do this for 20 years. Mm. I want to, I want to solve whatever the problem is, which is why it's got to be project based. I think solve small problems that, that leads to bigger solutions for the bigger overall arching problems. Right. But you start chipping away at these things with these things that you can see happening and seeing getting done. And then, um, we, you get to walk away and go, okay, cool. We solved that problem. Let's move on to the next new thing instead of the same thing year after year after year. So that's, that was the part with me where I'm like, I said, there's something wrong with charity if they're not trying to figure out how to not be relevant anymore. <laughs> that's Precisely, the goal because that means you solve the problem. Yeah, you, you have to work yourself out of the job that you're doing. And also you Absolutely. have to work in the way that if you die today, then everything you've done should continue and thrive and actually grow and that's all my projects i never do anything that that will not be you can pull me out of the equation any single time and everything we've done will go on regardless I see. that's what i call a perfect a perfect solution then you know because it's one of those things that it'll, it'll only keep getting better the more the longer it exists you know and and the byproduct of that is just it's just building on itself all the time you know because all the people that you've helped especially when we talk about children come on, they're going to grow up to be adults that benefited from this thing that children before them didn't have, right? So you now drop this uh, hospital into the situation or the equation. They grow up to be adults. 
probably inspired to be, uh, you know, doctors, nurses, health practitioners, and they're taking care of their people. They see that it's possible in their own country, blah, 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 blah. You just, you know what happens. It just, it's, it's this domino effect, this beautiful domino effect where they are now empowered. They believe it's possible. They don't think they have to leave Africa in order to experience the great things that they think are only outside of Africa. Now they see it in their own country from their own people. It's a game changer, you know, and that's what you've done. That's what you're doing. Yeah, no, I think that the two tenants that we are, I mean, we, we do empowerment, we do education and health mm. and health, mm -hmm. I'd say, you know, is the primary, especially with the hospital. Yeah. yeah. But there's also, I remember having um, a Christmas dinner with DC, a runner from Rwanda, who you might know, a 10,000 meter runner, he, mm -hmm. very good runner. And he told me a horrible story. And we were sitting there on Christmas day and he drew on his hand the blade that killed his mother. And he said, I hid in the bushes while the Hutsis came and murdered my entire family. And they lived, you know, like often is in Africa, you know, your family, everyone lives in the same little enclave type of thing. Right. He said he had the smarts to jump into the bushes and everyone else, you know, the Hutsis were saying, come on, you've got to get into the vans now. We're going to take you to safety. But when they were coming mm. out of the hut, they were hacking them all to death. And he looked at me and he said, every single person that I saw that was in the hacking hadn't been to school. I knew them. These were idlers who were the uneducated people. I, yeah. I don't believe if you go through an education that you'll, take a, you'll be able to be uh, brainwashed to actually take a machete to kill somebody. And how he said that, so it was so painful, and especially when he was talking about his own mother that died. And I remember thinking, like, you know, the more people I can get to a school, I'm helping solve the problem. And the same thing with um, health and education. They go together because preventative health is one of the most important things that isn't being taught in uh, mm. primary years in school. Mm -hmm. So I thought if I have a school, I'll also be able to put in preventative health lessons. Actually, in the doctor that I was dealing with at the time when I was building the hospital, he said, your schools are just as important because he said, you'll probably save 30, 40% of the kids if you actually teach them about hygiene. And, you know, little simple things that we think of as being as yeah. common sense but it isn't in you know I, I hate this thing of are you intelligent or not based on a degree or something like this because if i'm in the kahari desert or something and i have absolutely no i'm the most uneducated person in the world because i don't know my environments but the the bushman who's next to me who knows his way and can find water in the sand and stuff like this he's the most intelligent person so it's different skills for different things and sometimes, you know, mm. if you're living in rural Kenya, you won't get the basic lessons of, you know, okay, you have to soap your hands after you've been That's to right. the toilet, don't touch, or, you know, in a pit latrine against. So if I can actually do, I base my health program on looking at Britain in the 1930s. Mm. Britain was like a, you know, it was a very underdeveloped country in the 1930s, and people were dying in the streets. And especially in the north, out of London, you know, there was an area where there was no public health system. Once they set up the national public health system, the country got the stilts to build itself up because you have to provide public health care. There's a very rich Indian that I tried to get funds from in Nairobi. And I remember him telling me, no, Toby, Toby, you're wasting your time. You know, private health care is the only way forward. To so the person that earns a dollar a day, I, I, I couldn't even prefer have health care myself. You know, I was like, yeah, yeah. Can somebody who is a, a day-to-day -day subsistence farmer 
earn healthcare. And you say, no, 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 private healthcare is the only way forward if this world is going to be. You have to have public healthcare in a country to lift it up. So when Britain was able to lift it up, it then managed to develop. And I think in the same way, Winston Churchill said it best. He said, the best gift you can give a nation is healthy citizens. Mm -hmm. And when I look at my hospital, you know, have a parent coming with a sick child, the parent spending the whole time in the waiting room, sitting there, ruining a day, they're not earning their $1 or $2 per day. The child is being sick too. You know, it's this whole, people, don't, people fall into poverty because of bad health. That's one of the reasons. So if you can actually upbring the healthcare system and have a healthy nation, that's the quickest way. And that's, for instance, when you look at South Korea, who in the 1960s is yeah. going to countries like Kenya, asking for aid money, and now is a super developed money, is putting money into business, which is all the charities should employ Africans. Yeah. <laughs> putting, you know, putting money into education and putting money into public healthcare. Private wow. healthcare can come once the country has its, its uh, you know, its base. And they, they say health is truly the only real measurement of wealth because if you're not healthy, um, what are you spending the rest of your time doing? All of your money goes towards getting healthy, you know? So the wealth really doesn't matter if you don't have your health. It's because that's, that's the first thing that you actually need in order to thrive and not to survive, but to thrive in life. So yeah, it's a no brainer. Um, you know, when you, when you wait, put weight on what matters most in life, like, you know, all this stuff, it's like without your health, all the other stuff is secondary. It just always will be, you know, and just imagine being sick and trying to do stuff. If you're sick, it's hard to do anything when you're healthy it seems like anything is possible. Toby, can I ask you a question? Uh, right now, you have a hospital, you've got schools. What's, what, what's, the, what's the big project that you're working on right now with Shoe for Africa? I'm glad you asked. <laughs> my, favorite, <laughs> my favorite question to answer. What happened was when I built the hospital, you know, it's a general hospital. So we have every child and it's just specifically for the child because before in Kenya, children would have to go to general hospitals and they're overcrowded to 150%, the main, you know, the two big national hospitals, 50, 150%. So children would be turned away. And then also the apparatus was not there for children. And if you can imagine yourself as a six-year-old going to hospital and seeing your uncle in the next bed, you know, this, it had to be a place just for children. So my hospital is grossly overcrowded because being the only public children's hospital in the country, I mean, we've had people from, Seven, seven of the neighboring countries around coming. You know, we, that's the problem. If we, we suffer from anything. But on our second floor, or is it, yeah, the second floor on the third wing, we have our cancer ward, the oncology ward. Mm -hmm. and we have about 40 to 60 children suffering from oncology. And to be honest, once we start treating a child who's got cancer, the last place that they should go is a hospital a general public children's hospital because we have 200 odd diseases flowing around. Right. Although the design of my hospital was designed actually in a specific way to actually cut down on airborne diseases. You know, I built it like a tri-star mm -hmm. rather than it's, most hospitals are built in a cube just for money expense to save money. But if you build like a tri-star, you have less chance of diseases floating right. around like right. this. Right, that makes sense. There's still a big chance of a child who is getting treatment now with chemo will pick up an infection from another child. So I really don't want to have any kids with cancer. And when we started, we had about 18 or 19 kids. Now, as I say, it can be up to 60 and it's growing. Cancer is the fastest growing disease in Africa. 
Wow. Mm. And nothing is happening over there. Nine out of 10 kids, nine out of 10 who are diagnosed with cancers in East Africa are dying. Luckily, at our hospital, those, you know, those aren't our numbers. But that for me is that should be on the front cover of the New York Times. Yeah. Because that is a global travesty right now. Nine out of 10 kids. You know, in America, sadly, you know, if a child gets cancer, I mean, that's horrible. But at least they have a fighting odds. The odds here are one out of 10. So you have the exact same odds. And why? Because there's not even one single children's hospital, private or public, that's dedicated just for children's cancer to amplify and shine a light. So what happened was on, in 2018, I'd kind of said like, no, 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 I don't want to do any more big projects. I want to continue building schools and smaller projects. And we got some whole city. Um, somebody sent some football kits from whole city. So we decided to have a hospital oh, team with all our patients and be like, you know, cool. And it was a, tied in with some complicated funding idea because Hull was sponsored by a Kenyan gambling firm who I thought if they saw the little kids playing, I'd be able to get money for my next project, blah, blah, blah. And we got the kids on the field and my wife went around the wards and she went, we got about four playrooms and she just went to the playrooms and she, she got kids from each playroom. Asked the kids, so what is your disease? You know, what's your ailment? Blah, blah, blah. And funny enough, you know, again, you, know, you can say it's funny, whatever, but by fate, nine out of the 10 kids that we picked had uh, cancer. And I was sitting there watching them play, thinking, my God, that, you know, out of my team, I'm left with one goalkeeper, one person left. Everyone yeah. else is gone. You know, the, the odds, if I'm just looking at this team now. So I thought, okay, I have to do something. So for a few few years i've been toying around with the idea of writing the story about how i built the hospital mm -hmm. yeah zanzibar attack and things like that writing it and putting it down stuff like that and it just really didn't gel and also i didn't feel i had a conclusive enough story mm -hmm. you know it's kind of like bits and bobs but it wasn't really i, I would i'd get bored myself reading the story and but then i thought no 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 i have to write try and write a book because i wrote a book called more fire in 2008 yeah and the reason why Trainhard was selling for a lot of money on the internet and another friend said, why don't you write the book? Because then you can raise funds for the first hospital you build. Yeah. And it's not really the funds you actually build from the hospital. It's the people that write, read your book and then they help you in a big way. So yeah. in the more fire book, I happened to slide in a chapter about shoe for Africa, just blah, blah, blah. And it did, it worked. I met some very good people who helped me tremendously for the building of the first hospital. Mm -hmm. So I thought, why don't I do another one? So I wrote, you know, I had this script that I was kind of got knocking around with. I had a friend and he went on holiday to Mexico in 2019. And I gave him the script and I said, you'll do me a favor just by reading this and seeing whether you think it's any good. I'm sure it's full of spelling mistakes and rubbish. Right, and, right. and it was war and peace. It was like, you know, this thick it was way too long too. <laughs> I was awesome. just, yeah, poor guy. <laughs> yeah. He went off and he sat on the beach and he read it and he came back and he said, no, I want to make a, you know, $300,000 donation towards building a cancer hospital because wow. you know, this is your dream. And, you know, if you want to really do this, I want to stick behind you and push Dang. it. So, so the, the book kind of worked already just from the third reader. Fantastic. And wow. So my hope was, and if it had not been for COVID, we would have actually launched with the groundbreaking to build a 152 bed children's uh, cancer hospital. So we've had a few little setbacks now. I hope we'll be able to get back in. You know, some of the, mm -hmm. the funders are, 
their investors who might not make as big donations now just because of, you know, how business has been for them or something. I'm not sure. Everything yeah. is up in the air in this world right now. But that's the next project is to address cancers and to bring a children's cancer hospital. And right now in Kenya, there's three pediatric oncologists for 50 million people. Three. Oh, wait, wait. So you got to say that again. How, say 50, how many? 50 million people in Kenya and they have three pediatric oncologists. So we have one working at oh, our hospital. Man. The other two are in Nairobi. And we had one oncologist come to work at our hospital from Indiana University. He's from Riley. It's one of the major hospitals here in the States. And he said to me, he said, Toby, if you build a hundred bed children's hospital for cancers, you'll be able to save 350 lives per year just as a starting gate. Yeah. So I figured if we build 152 beds, we can save 500 lives. That's even before we start doing screening programs, you know, having all the exactly. kids from the area coming in, having screening, because that's one of the problems is late, de you know, detection. We tend to get kids in stage three. We don't get, nobody is coming like in stage one. Well, I think, you know, I have a pain in the neck. I think I have cancer. You know, we're always getting like last responders type stuff. Mm -hmm. So the goal is once we have this cancer center, it can be a beacon for shining shining a light on pediatric cancers just for sub-Saharan Africa. Because if you have the first hospital, then others will say like, hey, why don't we also have one? Or why don't we, and hopefully it'll start A, B, and C. Or mm -hmm. at a minimum, it can be a template for how, for what, learning how to do it really well and then and being able to expand it to the second one. I, I honestly, Toby, I, I think you'll get your money. I hope the investors you've already lined up are able to, to continue. But even if you don't, I'm, I've heard enough of, uh, about your story, talked with you. I, I'm confident you're going to get the money you need to, to, to see this through. I feel this is amazing. I really, I am so excited for our, uh, our audience to know more about your organization and, and incredible project. It's, um, we'll put links in, in all of our show notes and stuff. Um, I, we need to wrap it up. Uh, and I, we always end with the same question. And I feel like you've probably already sort of answered it. But I want to ask you, you know, what do the words go be more mean to you? I remember when John first told me the phrase and I was like, fantastic. I love it. It's for me, go be more is kind of, you know, it's exactly what my parents were telling me when I was younger. And mm. it's, it's that question. It's that kind of that nagging question. The same one as that guy used to call up on in January and say, you know, I never yeah. know what have you done. Go be more is a challenge to ourselves, and we all need to be challenged. And that's the problem when we, some of us feel that we don't, we're not motivated. The, the motivation has to come from within. It's if you're looking for external factors, you, you've got the wrong, wrong plot. Don't wait for other people. Don't wait for that perfect moment. I mean, I was lucky that things fell into my path mm -hmm. and really because it took me a long time to do it. But the go be more to me, is a little phrase that it's so easy. It's almost like, you know, I have this Kenyan wristband here, the mm -hmm. beads. You want go be more to be written on there. So when you're going around your daily life, you just look at your wristband, you go like, go be more, because it's a reminder to step up. And it's not like that handout. It's like that hand up to say, I'm here. I'm ready to be a part because we're in a precious world. And I, you know, we, we talk, we haven't had time to talk so much. I had another brain surgery after the, the one that I talked about, I had another, I have metal yeah. plates on both sides of my head now. So I more than everyone know how quickly we can be plucked out of this world. Yeah. And go be more as a reminder that you have to live every single day knowing that 
you're given that choice. It's a choice that you have to make. Don't wait for someone else in this world. And it doesn't have to be, you don't need to build a, a hospital. You don't need to build a school. You know, helping somebody is by giving them a hug in the street or, you know, giving a kid, you know, a guidebook or The Hobbit or, you know, it's yeah, that yeah. little trigger yeah. moments in life that I think one of the bad things about the internet now is that we judge ourselves on scale. We always mm -hmm. want to be the next Bono or the next, you know, whoever, the, the next uh, Bob Geldof. Or the, there's no need to start thinking about that. You know, if you do something, if you just help one single person and if you just do it for, you do your big, best effort for the day, nobody's judging you. Don't be judging you. You're an experiment of one. Your life yeah. story hasn't been lived by anyone else. Nobody. And when people start to remember this, they start go being more every day. And that's, that's what it means for me when I heard that phrase. Toby, I love that answer. I love all of our guests' answers. I always feel like our guests have such a, such a beautiful perspective on it. Um, for me, Toby, I want to say thank you so much for coming on and sharing so, many, so much of your story, so many of the personal ups and downs that you went through. I, I, one of the things that stands out to me always is that people who are very successful, we often see the success but not the journey. Right? We, don't see the, we don't see the struggles or the, the decision points and, and things. And you've had some amazing success both as a runner and as a, and as a philanthropist, I guess it, I would say, in, in Africa. And yet, um, for me, it's, it's understanding some of that path that makes it that much more special. And it also makes it that much more relatable because as you talk about your experiences, I say to myself, yeah, like I... I different circumstances but the same feeling right the same i'm stuck in a rut or i'm or i'm i'm dealing with this big thing that's this big setback and and so i appreciate you going through so much of the story and and putting perspective behind it and i just i really admire what you're doing so i'll, I'll end i'll end there and say thank you so much for for joining us and, and sharing your story thank you and i'll end by saying number one it was a pleasure talking to you brian and all to you to you john thank you so much Absolutely. for having me on and yeah. a reminder You know, when I, I started fundraising for my hospital, when, the, um, first of all, I launched in Iceland and Iceland went bankrupt. Then I launched in New York and New York, uh, the stock market crashed. And I planned thinking that I'd get millions of dollars from loads of people. And then President Obama was campaigning and I kept on hearing the small donations will take him to the White House. So that was my philosophy. I went for the mm. uh, small donations and the first donation was a hundred dollars. So a hundred dollar donation was what turned in today to a hospital that's treated over 500,000 children. So don't ever, Amazing. don't ever think that anything is, you know, insurmountable. It's standing up, go be more. That's it. That's it. Toby, thank you so much, brother. We appreciate you. Uh, we love you for all the good that you're doing in the world. And, and now, uh, I mean, I feel like I just got to be part of watching a movie. You know, yeah, it's I know. <laughs> like, uh, and, and honestly, I, I'm going to tell you right now, I am, that was so in, in, in entertaining and, and uh, engaging. Um, I cannot wait for uh, our audience to hear your story. I've admired you uh, and known of you and, and discovered you when I was a sophomore in high school at the state championships of California Uh, and um, I, when I discovered your book, Train Hard, Went Easy, The Kenyan Way, and uh, I've been able to enjoy learning from you and, and, and watching you know, a, a lot of your journey. It's funny. It's like you don't know until you talk to somebody what's, what's, what, what's really the details, right? But 
um, 23 years uh, right. you've been in my life and you've influenced my life in so many ways. And I know that you've done that for so many people throughout the running community. So it's an honor uh, for us to be able to share your story. Seriously. Oh, thank thanks, thank you so much, Toby. Thank you so much to me. I truly appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you. And we, we, we got to have you back on, you know, shoot for Africa is doing its thing. And, and when yep. we got to, we got to talk, dive more into the nitty gritty of what's, what, what else you're doing and, and uh, how people can get more involved and everything. And I know, like Brian said, we're going to share uh, links and, and, and information just so that people can discover it if they don't know it uh, so they can get involved. And, and this is our world, everybody, just to remind you guys, we're at a, a really interesting time in history. And I think telling, specifically telling stories like yours, Toby, is pretty important because um, uh, it is one of those reminders that at the end of the day, we shape the world that we live in. And the world that we live in right now, honestly, is a byproduct of the choices that we've all made as a society globally. And what that should, what we should take from that is that we now have an opportunity to shape a, a completely new world. And honestly, what was normal once before is, is gone. It's never going to be the same. But what it will become is up to us. And if we don't go be more and pursue the best versions of ourselves and what we believe the world should be, we're blowing it. Mm. To say it frankly, we're blowing it. Because I don't want to live in the world that was normal because what was normal sucked. Mm. Yeah, it wasn't yeah, good enough. Changing. We need to change. And this is our moment in history for all of us. And so this message that we're sharing, you know, and have an opportunity to have uh, an individual like yourself, uh, even just to say the phrase and to give, share your, your interpretation of it, what it means to you. I hope it, it catches people's attention because this is more than, more than anything. This is a, a moment in time and we hope that enough people wake up, right? Like you're saying, it, how many times do we have to have something happen before we realize what mm. we're supposed to really do? It is. I mean, it's a sad, you know, it's a sad world in many ways. And I think there's many ways that we can step up and use this time to reset the compass and say, how can we, you know, okay, this has been a dramatic change in so many people's lives. You know, people's lives are being lost. People's lives are being changed. How can we be better citizens? How can we pull together, start pulling down borders and start working that we're all, we're all in this. And Nike put it beautifully and they said, you know, it's one race together. Uh, yes. How do we actually prove that and live it rather than just, you know, put it on posters? And I think this is the time to do it. And we can be the change makers that the generation look back and say, yes, they are the ones. They were the ones that did it for us. So it's a yeah. challenge for all of us now to play our part and to step up. Thank you so much, Toby. Thank you, Toby. Thank you. Hey, everybody. I hope you enjoyed that episode. A couple more things before we go. First, a big thank you to Michelle at Creatives Collective Marketing for her assistance with the editing in the show notes. Please join us on Friday when we speak with elite miler Will Lear, who shares how he went from a small D3 school to one of the best milers in the country, as well as his perspective on some of the big races he and John had against each other. Lastly, if you enjoy the pod, please help us out by giving us a review on iTunes. It makes a big difference, and to make it extra easy for you, I put a link to the reviews at the top of the show notes. For all of us at Gobi Moore, we are what the world is chasing, and we hope this podcast helps you become what the world is chasing too.